Welcome everyone to Dobbless Fingers episode 47. Do all gods feel so lonely? I'm Scatty, we have with us Brick and Matt as always. Hello. Oi. And tonight I will be playing the role of Phoebe with her cold from Friends. Uh, and we'll be doing a brief summary of uh, Sansa 6, John 9, Tyrion 10, Danny 6, Jamie 9, that's chapters 68 to 72 of A Storm of Swords, according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. As always, we are spoiler-free. Until the end of this podcast, we've got a special segment then called Davos After Dark, and we get into all sorts of fun uh, theories and spoilery things. So we'll warn you with a jingle, but uh, if you don't want to be spoiled, jump off at that point. Lastly, uh, always getting great feedback from you guys, from George's fans. Uh, if you want to contact us, uh, just ask questions, whatever, just have a chat. That's DavosFingers.com. Email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com. Twitter at DavosFingers, or find and like us on Facebook. Also, we have a little bit of a special episode tonight. We all uh, went and saw Ghostbusters, uh, which has come out over the last few weeks, and uh, we are going to finger the hell out of that film. So if you're into that sort of thing, getting fingered or listening to us finger uh, films, stick around uh, for the end of the episode, and we'll, uh, we'll, I think we talked for about an hour on it, guys. It was a lot of fun. We did, and, uh, yeah, 45 minutes or so. Yeah, so stick around, and you can listen to us geek out over... Uh, over a film that uh, was a big part of Matt's childhood, and I think, uh, yeah, Brooks and mine a little less, but... Uh, Rookies too. Yeah. I thought you said you were into the cartoon. I mean, I guess it counts. It all counts. The franchise. <laughs> it's all busting ghosts, yeah. man. Yeah, right. busting makes us feel good. <laughs> uh, well, no spoilers on whether it made us feel good or not. You'll have to wait for the fingering, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll jump into that at the end, so stick around if you're interested. Nothing else really on the announcements, um, other than I just wanted to throw in... We neglected to mention uh, how excited we were over the new Rogue One footage. Uh, I don't think we have anything really too spectacular to say, but it looks amazing. We're all really excited, and probably we'll finger that too. Uh, without a doubt. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I think that's it for announcements. Uh, Matt, your episode. And your chapter with uh, with Sansa. So, Sansa 6, take her away, Sked. Don't know when a prince will come, but surely he's gonna come for Sansa Stark. Yeah, be looking like a Tully and a daddy killed a wolfy Sansa Stark. Amid storms, Peter's ship claws its way home as Sansa fights seasickness when awake and dreams of Joffrey's grisly death and Tyrion's perhaps equally grisly future when she sleeps. It's all worth it though, right? Because soon she'll be home, surrounded by the comforting if cold walls of Winterfell, to walk through the familiar godswood, to visit the indoor garden, or not. Peter had told Sansa they were going home, and they are. His own home. On the fingers. <sighs> it's not, uh, it's kind of a, not, not us, not us, the fingers, but a geographic area called the fingers. Uh, we'll probably talk about that in a Sock and Sue's Mappus later. Of course they can't go to Winterfell. Uh, it's been sacked, the land is war-torn. It's time, Sansa, for you to make a new home. Tell her what she's won, Bob. Sheep shit and rocks, guys. The fingers are ugly. But Littlefinger assures her they won't be there for long. He's to marry Lysa, Sansa's aunt, and then they'll all go to the Eyrie. The Eyrie. Eyrie, Eyrie. They row ashore from the boat to a bleak keep and a bleak household of seemingly very loyal employees. Peter insults his home to no end, and it's hilarious. Nothing says home like burning dung, and he's excited to have his meals of cold salt mutton, gulls' eggs, and yes, seaweed. They settle in for a moment, before Peter dives in. Sansa, spies are everywhere. You can no longer be Sansa. You are now Elaine, my natural daughter. 
They set up a brief history, agree on some facts, and poof, a new character is created. Sansa, <coughs> Elaine, is nervous, but she's in. She kind of calls it like a little game. Then conversation drifts to Joffrey's murder. Sansa suspects that Peter compelled Dantos. Try again, Peter says. Many pieces to be moved in this game, and he has many friends. To illustrate, he calls over Sir Oswell, one of the people that, were, that was uh, on the boat with him. It turns out Oswell is the father of the Kettleblacks. They have the hooked noses, one of them on the Kingsguard. Buddy-buddy with uh, Circe. So they've actually been in Petey's pocket the whole time. So one of them did it then? Nope, Peter says, try again. But Sansa has no more guesses. Littlefinger indicates that it was indeed Olena, in an effort to rid Marjorie of Joff, but retain her crown for a future marriage to Tommen. Lysa arrives eight days later, after they've gotten to the keep, and demands that the wedding to Peter and the bedding happen immediately, and she promises to scream throughout the bedding. Though Peter wanted a very public wedding, he eventually relents to her eagerness. They wed within the hour, and Lysa looks very much a lady in love at the reception. And she sounded a lady in love screaming, as promised, when they consummated. As the night comes to a close, Sansa is sexually assaulted. Marillion, you may remember him, he's the singer from Cat's Trip to the Eyrie. He's pleading with Sansa and in the end demanding her to lay with him. Protests of her being disinterested, a maiden, and anything else she can think of only embolden him. And just as events are about to become dire, Lothar Brune, one of Peter's loyal servants, hounds his way to the rescue, cutting Marillion with a dagger and sending him on his way. With the morning, Elaine is summoned to see her aunt and her identity revealed. So now Sansa gossips about her crap, crappy marriage with, or, sorry, Lysa gossips to Sansa about her crappy marriage to John Aaron, Cat's death, the vile dwarf Tyrion, and cruelly threatens Sansa if she is pregnant with Tyrion's child before getting to the main course. Sansa will marry her son Robert, a sniveling boy with weak eyes and too fragile to roughhouse. He likes stories and songs and games, but he always has to win. And the chapter ends. Continually looking up for Sansa. <laughs> yes. She gets nothing but good news in these books. She's so lucky. There's such a bright future. Yeah. <laughs> Every so, time you say Irie instead of Eerie, I get that island feeling. Come on. It'll be Irie. <laughs> no. Oh, don't worry now. It'll be Irie. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so was was Sansa deluded to think she could go home? Totally. Yeah. She's like, Lord Peter was being so kind. Like, she's still <laughs> falling for it. Yeah. Oh, Sansa, it's been so long. Like, you've grown so much, but you're still falling for it. Yeah. Poor girl. Um, still love her. Yeah, yeah indeed. But, uh, you know, maybe she can, maybe she can make, uh, make a nice life here with this, with this change. Uh, as Elaine. What do you think? You like the name? Elaine? I do. Elaine. Yeah, that's pretty. Bad. Yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty. Should have thought of that one oh. when I was naming Zachary. Oh. <laughs> what I really liked was seeing um, Peter's humble roots, yeah. which really magnifies how far he has come. Yeah. Incredibly. Oh my yeah. yeah. And how free he is in mocking them. <laughs> he's a real jerk. Yeah, he's awesome. He's something like, else. I can be he's a jerk, so I'm gonna be one. Right. <laughs> what uh, What did you think of of uh, Peter's? Well, he's told Sansa that it was just Olena that did it. We've talked in this cast about 
our opinions about all of that. Uh, he implies it, but it could just be what he wants Sansa to believe. Yeah, and it totally, that could have been the plan, was for her to do it. But if yeah. we go off the off the Matt Thacker special theory, that plan was audibled. Well, and uh, over to Garland, and and she, and and Peter might not even know in the end who ended up actually putting the amethyst in the cup. I he mean, wasn't would there. He have yes, found out. Totally true. We might not know, but I I think what he says in there, and maybe I'll have to hunt it down for a future episode and bring it back up, but. I think it implies in this chapter that Olena didn't even didn't even involve the other members in the plan. Yeah, and there is a part where she, he says she's not as frail as she looks. Yeah, stuff like she, she. I think there were I think there were probably some pretty high members of the Tyrell family that didn't know about it. Yeah. I'm thinking Mace in particular. You don't want to tell that guy any sort of plan that you're doing. <laughs> you don't even want to tell him about like a surprise birthday party that you're throwing for somebody. <laughs> uh, Oh. Who knows? Uh, yeah. Okay. This has been hashed. <laughs> Move on. Is no one saying? agrees with me. No one agrees with me. <laughs> I just think there there are some interesting nuggets in there. I'll just leave it at this. There are some interesting there nuggets are. in there that imply, I think, from Littlefinger, that he worked with Olena and Olena acted alone in order to keep Marjorie out of it and other people out of it. Super risky. Yeah. But anyway, yes, we have hashed it quite a bit. Yeah, I think uh, an even more masterful sort of his, you know, he's obviously just put the pieces in place. Right? He doesn't need to know that Olena involved anyone else. He just right. put the intent and the means there and, and let it play out. And the similar thing happened with the um, the Kettleblacks. I mean, yeah. my God, like how, how much how much did he have to rely on on the Kettleblacks just like playing the part yeah it was pretty impressive right like he set up the pieces but they still have to play the part arguably the kingsguard are the best knights in the land like right that's their history mm -hmm. they are the cream of the crop the seven best knights in the land so <laughs> osmond sorry wait no no it that's that's a note i made me perspective george editor they call him oswald twice in this, oh, really? Me. As a mistake? As yeah. A mistake. yeah. Okay. Then <laughs> I'm blaming George on this one. <laughs> yeah. Between this Jamie chapter and the last Jamie chapter, he calls him Oswald once in each of them. Just blame George for creating these worthless throwaway characters to begin with. I hate the kind What of a words. loser. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 did, I did completely forget that there were Pete's, though. I completely forgot that. I, I don't know how I misplaced that nugget in my memory, but I completely mm. forgot they were in his pocket. Also, kind yeah. of surprising that nobody found oh. this out. Nobody knows that their dad works for Littlefinger? Seems sketchy. Yeah. Well, it's it's almost... Because remember Jamie in a past chapter when he first met uh, Osmond Oswald slash... Osmond slash Oswald. That's what we'll, what we'll call him from now on. When he first met him, he was like, hmm, I wonder what this guy's family is. What is his history? Yeah. But it's almost like he was just like, well, he made it to the Kingsguard, so he must check out. He must be yeah. good. It's like, it's like so ballsy <laughs> that he is actually on the Kingsguard. Nobody thinks to double check that he might have come from the Fingers, and then there might be some sort of connection to Littlefinger. It's great. Yeah. And apparently he's the only one that's ever wondered as well. Yeah. And he actually talks to the guy about it. And the guy's like, ah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Like, I'm here yeah, now. I've been around. I've yeah. been around. Yeah, he play, he played it off in that Jamie chapter really well. 
here and there, yeah. my lord, or something, right? Mm-hmm. So Sansa's about to get Do the much. bastard treatment. <laughs> yeah. Irony. <laughs> It's well great. played, George. Well Give played. Give her a little perspective on how it feels to be a bastard. Yeah. Hey, this singer wants to sleep with you. If you, if you. if you were truly a bastard, then you would be very weak-willed and yeah. lusty of hearts. Yeah. Play your you part, woman. Yeah. Yeah, the dirty hearts that all the bastards have. Yeah, you were born that way. You probably wouldn't have a Lothor Brune coming to your rescue either. Not that you'd even want someone to come to your rescue. Like you're saying. Mm. Well, Lothar does know the truth, right? But Yes. Oh, you're saying if she really was. I see. Right. Yes. Playing along. I can play along. Uh, I didn't have much else. I have one more thing uh, that I I don't think think we have to spend a ton of time on. But I I found it interesting that that Lysa, in her discussion with Sansa, indicates that she's been way more involved than I ever thought. Like, the early views you get of Lysa are really that she's kind of a fuck-up. And maybe she still is a little bit, but... She got Peter his start, right, with mm-hmm. with Lord Aaron, like kind of set him up to get going. And she's kind of been doing things in the background this whole time, um, you know, to try to try to make things happen. And uh, I don't know, interesting. She's more of a player, I guess, than it appeared in Cat's chapter, and that's maybe a POV thing, right? Because we got her from Pat, Cat's perspective, yeah. who always probably thinks of her as just a kid sister who can't do anything, maybe. But yeah, she's kind of. But she's still, despite the fact that she thinks she's playing, she's actually a pawn in the end, right? Of Littlefinger. She is, yeah. But she was able to accomplish things for him. She was a valuable was. player to him, yeah. rather than yeah. just adult, I guess. I'm glad I'm glad you brought it up, because I don't think we can escape this chapter without talking a little bit about Lysa. Like, oh, it's, it's just tragic to see that she's she is actually... She seems, by all intents and purposes, to be happier than she's been in her whole adult life. Yeah. Right? As annoying as she is, Mm -hmm. and as terrible as she is, and how much every word that I read of hers on the page makes me just cringe, she's happy. And that's really tragic, right? Because we know that Littlefinger doesn't care at all about her. Yeah. And uh, it sucks. Yeah. It, cert- like it certainly it. seems that way, that Peter doesn't care at all. Um, right. Yeah, from what I'm getting from what he's saying about what he's saying to Sansa is he's definitely not as into Lysa as she is into him. So. Yeah, his whole, his whole attitude is just kind of cavalier about the whole thing, not, not heartfelt, right? It's not that he says anything like, fuck that bitch or anything, but but he, he's just very cavalier about the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever had those people in your life that you like... Like you, you, you look at them and they annoy the the piss out of you, right? And then you realize, you know what? It's not their fault that they annoy me. I'm the one that's being annoyed by them. I really should give them the benefit of the doubt. Never, and, always their and fault. And you try, and you try to do it, but then they open their mouths and they say something. <laughs> you're like, nope, just I hate them. I just <laughs> I can't stand you. <laughs> screw all that trying to be the bigger guy or trying to be empathetic or something screw it that's how i am with lisa it's like it's not her fault that she's all screwed up like this i mean look what she's had to go through but then she opens her mouth and she says something and i just like screw it i hate her yeah i i pity her a little bit uh a little bit and so i don't Mm -hmm. i don't think i hate her as much as you but i think that we we talked about this before that's the way i feel about salise oh yeah she's totally in that same boat I've got a lot of relatives like that, and co-workers too. 
<laughs> I wasn't gonna say it, Matt. You were you knew who I was referring to. I don't know at all anything that you're referring to. I plead the fifth. I, I will say though that I think George has an extreme talent for describing physically ugly characters. Even he's even better at that than describing the beautiful ones. Yeah. Go George. He really does he has no mercy. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. If someone's skin is bad, you're gonna get a description of every poor. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's bad. Liza's well, got someone's... the saggy arms and yeah. The... yeah. Yep. They're a little overweight. Oh man. <laughs> barely barely sitting a horse. Uh, yeah, poor Liza. I kind of enjoyed this chapter because Liza and Peter deserve each other at this point. Mm. And it's, it's kind of beautiful to observe, but uh, her treatment of Sansa is deplorable. And I understand it's because of jealousy, mm-hmm. because Liza feels threatened. But if she had even an ounce of maturity in her, she would see past that and be supportive of her niece. And it's just so frustrating. She, all she yeah. has to do is change her attitude just a little bit. Because you're right, Matt. It's It's not... You can't change anyone. You can only change how you treat that person, talk to that person, um, deal with that person's quirks. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be a real challenge. <laughs> I have some ex-coworkers that I feel that way about. Oh, do you? I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> do they work in the uh, Salt Lake office of your former company? Are they named no. Matt and Scott? <laughs> One a Mormon and one an atheist. Uh, A Mormon, an atheist, and Brooke go into a bar. That never happened. Not once. A Song of Ice and Fire comes out. Okay. Well, I, uh, I, guys, this was a music-heavy episode for me. Like, I was thinking up songs up the wazoo, and I found a great Peter Baelish song. I can't believe it took me this long to think of it. All right. You guys like the the old 90s band Everclear? No. Sure. I I know their one song, yeah. Everclear is amazing. Santa Monica, that's a wonderful song. It's not Mm -hmm. the song I'm thinking of. Are you referring to the drink? Because that I like. No. No. I'm sure you do. (laughs) I'll go on. They're a great 90s band. They've got an album called So Much for the Afterglow, which to this day remains probably one of my top 25 favorite albums of all time. But uh, they've got a song called One Hit Wonder, and it totally made me think of Peter Baelish. Here's some lyrics. He says, uh, yeah, he says he likes it up on top. Yes, he knows if he ever lets go, the pretty machine will swallow him whole. He has no fear. He has no sense of shame. He will not stop until everyone wants to know his name. Uh, The one hit wonder, he likes the big time. He says he wants to live the kind of life that will make the folks back home all bitch and whine. He knows if he ever even gets the chance, he'd sell his soul to make the monster dance, and they can't hurt you unless you let them. Good little finger song? Yeah, that's spot on. Pretty good, except he's not a one-hit wonder. But other than no, that, the lyrics are like the, the title yeah. of the song belies everything else. <laughs> right? Yeah, but yeah, the lyrics are yeah, they're like spot on. Right. Ah, nailed it. Good one. Sell his soul to make the monster dance. Yeah, that's her. That's her Baelish. Anyways, I got more coming up. 
pins and needles. Oh, great. Gosh. I can't wait to revisit more of my high school radio <laughs> escapades. Oh, dude. Such a good album. <laughs> all right. That's all I got. Anyone else got anything for uh, Sansa? I'm good. No, I'm all right. Good. Uh, I'm next, then. We go back up to John at the Wall. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles bloom like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf He's John Snow Okay, so John wakes to another day on top of the wall. He can't remember the last time he'd had a decent night's rest. As the text says, when he closed his eyes, he dreamed of fighting. When he woke, he fought. And these days, Black Brothers didn't even leave the wall, catching small amounts of rest in the warming shed that was on top of the wall before just returning to duty and fighting Mance. Day after day, on the ground, Mance's horde stays... uh, Excuse me. Rewind. So day after day. On the ground, Mance's horde stayed busy as well, sledgehammers clanging, saws sawing, and trees crashing down. They weren't giving up on their efforts to get through the wall, just as the Black Brothers hadn't given up on defending it, even though their wall defense resources are all but spent. Um, And the small amount of defenders are exhausted beyond belief at their constant need for vigilance. Remember, Mance has got thousands of people he can throw at the wall, and we've only got this you know, virtual handful of guys that are defending it. So that morning, the wildlings reveal their newest tactic, a turtle. It's basically a huge protective shell like an overturned ship that moves forward on wheels. And the idea is to protect attackers underneath this turtle's shell as it moves forward to the wall. And then once they get up to the wall, specifically the gate, they can start busting down the gate under the protection of this turtle. Uh, Their catapults and fire arrows proving ineffective against the tightly stretched wet hides over the turtle, John and the brothers roll out the desperation weapon they'd prepared the night before, large barrels full of gravel and water that is frozen overnight. So basically, they've just made huge cement boulders. Requiring four men just to move one barrel, they roll it off the side of the wall to destructive effect. It totally smashes the turtle. A couple barrels later, later, and this turtle is just a mess of splintered wood, and the surviving wildlings that had manned it had retreated back to the forest. Another small victory for John, but how much longer the victories could last, he thinks. There's, I mean, there's eight barrels left of this cement stuff and nothing else. So this weighing on his mind... John's exhaustion reaches its peak, and he finally decides to descend the wall, return to Castle Black, and get some real sleep using Dreamwine. He's awoken a short time later by four black brothers who take him not kindly to the Solar of the Lord Commander. There he's met by Maester Eamon and other greybeards of the Watch, and two faces no one is particularly excited to see, Alistair Thorne and Janos Slint. (sighs) It's the first time John's met Slint, but we remember him as the bumbling former commander of the King's Landing City Watch, who'd been sent to the wall by Tyrion. Um, and this all happened while John was out cavorting with the wildlings. And it happens to be that cavorting that has brought them all together today. Uh, despite John's tireless and loyal defense of the wall during the prolonged wilding, wildling attack, I mean, despite the injury he sustained, escaping a greet in the Magnar to warn Castle Black of their coming, Thorn and Slint are simply on a witch hunt, and John is the Wicked Witch of the North. 
It's telling that John is at first only interested in the reinforcements Thorn and Slyn must have brought with them to help his exhausted men, but that Slint and Thorn are only interested in burning John at the stake. Uh, Slint, who unfathomably seems to have been placed into a leadership role and Thorne supports it, brings forth accusations of oath-breaking, cowardice, and desertion for ditching his black brothers beyond the wall and joining up with Mance. Uh, killing the half-hand, bunking up with the greet, they throw the book at John, who replies defiantly with the defense that the half-hand had commanded him not to balk in his quest to learn as much about the wildlings as he could. Uh, Slint and Thorn then bring in their star witness, who John eventually recognizes as none other than Rattleshirt, who's looking a lot less intimidating out of his armor of bones with his unibrow in full view of humanity. Uh, <laughs> Rattleshirt sings a sweet song, actually mostly telling the truth from his point of view, as he recounts witnessing John and Ghost's dispatching of Corrin. And you know what? To be fair, John's defense of Corin told me I had to do whatever I had to do must have sounded a bit feeble on its own without anyone else to back it up. But then it starts to get simply ridiculous, with Thorne suggesting that John's killing of Corin and Mormont's murder were all part of the same fell plot. And Slint then gets personal by bringing Ned into the whole thing, calling him a traitor. Not even Maester Eamon's firm, heartfelt testimony on John's behalf can get through to these losers who, at the end of the chapter, command that John be taken to an ice cell to await his execution. That's pretty much where the chapter ends. Although we do get a nice little bit at the end, right, where as they're walking out, John, like, grabs Alisair Thorne one-handed by the throat and, like, pushes him up against the wall which was awfully satisfying to read and a little surprising because John's like 15 years old, right? He's been uh, pretty angrier or he's bulkier than we think he is to uh, be able to do that. Anyways, good chapter? Frustrating? Uh, fun and then frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I say overall just frustrating. I, I hate this. I hate hearing about mammoths dying and and wildlings <laughs> oh, yeah. dying just like just throwing themselves breaking themselves against this wall like it's so heartbreaking right well, and if it makes you feel yeah. any better somewhere in the chapter they say they've, they've only lost a hundred men i thought that was weird that's what was frustrating for me I'm glad you caught that too it's like they've been doing this for seemingly a couple like... days or a few days and they've only killed a hundred men and they're almost I mean... out of supplies they're almost out of resources, and yeah, a hundred of the hundreds of thousand wildlings are dead. Yeah, that... yeah. it's all just, oh, it just feels like a huge ugh. waste of... Yeah, like, talk to these guys. So I'm glad that John is going out there, but... It kind of it kind of uh, goes back to what we discussed last episode about perhaps it's Mance's strategy to just bleed the Night's Watch of all their resources... Yeah, and then mount the real attack because, like again, the the wildlings are only down a hundred guys, and John's almost out of defense weaponry. Yeah, mm. this will probably it's just frustrate. You, Mance, if that's what you're doing. This will probably just frustrate Book more. Uh, but Mance shouldn't be waiting. He should be sending guys at the wall constantly, because John's men can't sleep if they do that. They they have no men to like tag in and out. Mance has as many men as he wants. Just send them at the wall constantly to go batter down the door. 
these guys will eventually, like, in World War II, the Royal Air Force in, uh, for England had to, like, use speed, basically, like Benzedrine and stuff, just to, because there weren't enough pilots to fight off the Germans. This is the same thing. Like, there aren't enough Black Brothers to stay awake long enough to keep repelling the attacks. Like, he should just keep sending them. A hundred men? Are you kidding me? It's nuts. Eventually, they, mm-hmm. they, would, they would have to give in. Yep. I don't think they have Benzedrine there either. <laughs> Maybe there's some sort of tansy situation yeah. <laughs> that George can introduce another magical flower that <laughs> yes. just take care of business. Yes. Yeah. Moldy bread. Suddenly, Stick it on yeah. there. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> it turns and into a superhuman. I wanted to make sure before we got out of this John chapter uh, to thank our uh, two sets of engineers that uh, gave a valiant effort in trying to build the corpse <laughs> ramp up to the wall. Yes, it's pretty impressive. But there's, I I have a new assignment for them. John mentions hoardings, which I didn't know what hoardings were, so I had to look them up. Uh, Hoardings are basically Uh just think of them as like big structures that you put at the base of your castle wall that force uh, the attackers to be away from the wall, improving your angle to shoot at them. Which, at seven hundred feet tall, that angle is steep. I can't imagine they're shooting really well with arrows by the time they get next to the wall, which is why they're relying on pitch and other things that will fall straight down. But uh, I want to know how big the hoardings would actually have to be in order to really impact that shot when it's 700 feet tall. Because they would have to stick out like... They'd have to stick out like 40 feet. It'd have to be huge. Anyway, hoardings. Interesting. (laughs) Mm. It is interesting. that what you read is they were at the base of the wall? Yeah, I think huh. so. Unless I misunderstood I it. It said something com- completely di- different, that hoardings were something they put up high at the wall, but that stuck out from the wall so that people could shoot straight down or dump things straight down. I don't think you want to shoot. Well, you could. You would want to dump straight down. I don't think you'd want to shoot straight down. Okay, well, now we'll have to go double-check mm-hmm. hoardings. One of us got it wrong. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. If it was me probably was uh more evidence of john thinking on his feet uh, though with the rock barrels it was a pretty brilliant idea oh man <laughs> adding the john. water yeah Ooh, those physics check out <laughs> yeah. Adam, boy johnny again it's so crazy to believe that until this battle john's had no battle experience yeah until the attack on the wall that the you know the one from the south first of all and now this one no real battle experience and john manages to think these things through and lead effectively it's just a real testament to i guess this innate ability he has almost unbelievable well it's like his fighting techniques too though like when he was first training when he first got to the wall like uh, i think it was sir alistair somebody was like listen you just gotta take it easy you have been castle forged yourself not just your sword like you have significantly more yeah yeah okay yeah You've had significantly, you know, better teachers, better influences, better opportunities. Like, and I, I can see that just kind of, you know, paying off here too. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. History that he's read. Yeah, that's true. Or, or right. that sort of thing. Yeah. Good point. I, mean, yeah. I don't want to give him all the credit of just being born with it because he is a bastard. So he is inherently quite evil. evil. Yeah. yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. So, yeah. Don't, Terrible. Don't give the credit to. Tim B. 
you're right. My bad. <laughs> what? Why? Why does Slint hold Corn Halfhand in such high esteem? He doesn't even know the guy, does he? Uh, oh, he doesn't. He doesn't. He just wants an excuse to bring down the son of Ned Stark. Mm. Right? I guess it's Tyrion he should hate. Right? Yeah, he, he doesn't he doesn't care about Corrin Halfhand. But it's it's Tyrion and the Lannisters that he should hate, right? Slint. It is. Definitely. Yeah. The whole thing just seems. Yeah. We- I mean, it's a power grab, yeah. pro- probably, but I, I don't know. It's it's weird. Yeah, he might view well, the John fact as that a Marsh. Threat. The fact that oh, Marsh. Yeah. I think Slint has established that he, he's uh he, he's making a power grab. Uh, it seems like he likes being in that position um, of leadership. Yeah, I think he definitely sees John as a th- threat. Mm. And he might just be following along for Alistair, because Alistair hates him. Partnership, yeah. right? Those guys are totally in love, aren't they? <laughs> totally in love. Well, I don't know if I do a short but Slint and Quite chummy. <laughs> yeah, together forever. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't have anything else. Anyone else on no, the John yeah. chapter? No, I'm just excited to see where this goes because I, I can't. I can't actually. Rem- I didn't actually remember all this with them waking him in the night and threatening him and stuff. I can't uh-huh. remember. Ex- like I know broadly what happens, but I can't remember what happens right after this. So I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting to uh, something that we haven't had in a long time. The next episode has two John chapters in one episode, which still doesn't beat our record that I think we had back in Game of Thrones where we had three Eddard chapters three in nets. one episode. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we haven't had that in a while. So we'll get some answers in episode 48. Uh, well, if we don't have anything else, Brookie, or I think you're on Tyrion. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. Here we go. Yeah. Buckle up, gents. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty intense chapter, so I'm going to actually break it into parts. Part one, Tyrion gives up. It's morning on the last day of Tyrion's trial, and he's feeling pretty shitty. He has no appetite for his breakfast and is distracted by the meager options left to him at this point. There's one last witness for the throne, and then it's Tyrion's turn. He could deny everything and make a case for blaming the missing Sansa and Sir Dantos. He could confess and try to make a life for himself on the wall, or he could roll the Dornish dice and bank on the Red Viper of Dorn, defeating the mountain that rides. His bleakest point comes when he asks Podrick to be honest. Does Pod think Tyrion did it? And even poor Pod can't lie to Tyrion. Tyrion accepts he is doomed even without committing the crime and wishes he had taken out his vile little nephew since he must suffer for the deed either way. To Tyrion's dismay, the last witness presented by the crown is Shay. A cold hand of fear and worry tightens around his heart, and he blames Varys and then himself for not protecting her. But then Shay opens her mouth, kicks Tyrion under the bus, and drags him for eight blocks. Tyrion has to listen to the girl he loves tell the court that he and Sansa plotted the whole thing. That Tyrion is plotting to kill Cersei, Tywin, and Tommen, too, just to take the throne for himself. That Tyrion had arranged for the death of Shay's betrothed and forced her to be his whore. That he had made her do shameful, unspeakable things with all of her parts, all of her parts. And he had forced her to call him her giant of Lannister. Ouch. 
The last, the last confession is a real winner with the hundreds of people in the throne room and the whole place shakes with laughter, everyone joining in on Tyrion's humiliation, except for dear old dad. But probably not because Tywin didn't find it funny. Tywin is just a cold bitch with masterful control. Which brings us to part two. Tyrion gets mad. Get this lying <laughs> whore out of my sight and I will give you my confession, he tells the judges. Guilty, so guilty, he confesses, but not of killing Joffrey. His only crime is being born a dwarf. He didn't poison the king, but he wishes he had, that he had poisoned everyone in the room laughing at him. Tyrion pronounces that he has no choice but to appeal to the gods and demands trial by battle. That his champion is Prince Oberyn of Dorne has the desired effect of sending the whole court into an uproar. Tyrion delights in the doubt he sees flickering in his sister's eyes and how royally he screwed his father's careful plotting and mediation between Dorne and Highgarden. Tyrion is pretty proud of himself and he thinks it's almost worth dying to know all the trouble he's made. Tyrion sleeps like a baby that night and wakes up with a lusty appetite, breaking his fast on fried bread, blood sausage, apple cakes, and eggs cooked with onions and fiery Dornish peppers. He's given leave to attend his champion before the battle, which is part three. Tyrion has concerns. Tyrion finds Oberyn drinking wine first thing in the morning and donning the armor equivalent to lingerie for his fight against Gregor Clegane. <laughs> Tyrion untactfully reminds Oberyn that the mountain is almost eight feet tall and weighs 30 stone, all of it muscle. That's uh, 420 pounds or 190 kilograms for the rest of the world. So that's a, it's a, it's a lot of mountain. Oberyn is boy. like, yeah, he's he's big boy. Oberyn's like, don't worry about it. And then he calls for his delicate long spear as his primary weapon. Tyrion is not comforted, even with a black gleam of something, possibly poison, on the tip of the sharp blade. The viper is confident that he'll find a chink in the mountain's armor with which to tickle him and blithely invites Tyrion and his lovely wife to visit Dorne when the day's blood spilling is done. Tyrion agrees as Oberyn puts on soft red leather gloves and a helmet with no visor or face protection. Oberyn then confides in Tyrion that their mothers had once contrived to wed Oberyn and his sister um, Elia to either Cersei or Jaime or both. However, after Tyrion's mother had died giving birth to Tyrion, and Oberyn's mother had suggested the alliance to Tywin, Tywin had quickly shut down that plan, telling Oberyn's mother that Cersei was being kept to be wed to Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, and that Elia could marry Tyrion instead of Jaime. This, of course, was a grave insult, and Tyrion's like, oh yeah, of course, that was an insult, and points out that it would seem Oberyn's mother won that competition by eventually marrying Elia to Rhaegar in the end. She thought so, Prince Oberyn agreed, but Tywin is not a man to forget such slights. He taught that lesson to the Tarbex, to the Castamirs, and also to the Martells when he had Elia killed in King's Landing during the uprising. And now it's time for justice for Elia and her royal children. Part 4. Tyrion has his middle fingers poised and ready. There must be a thousand people gathered to watch Tyrion's bait, people crowding in the Red's Keep yard, hungry for blood. 
Sir Gregor is like steel-coated stone in comparison to Prince Oberyn's supple leathers and flowing silks. With very little ceremony, the battle begins and the viper calls out to the mountain, asking him if he knows who Oberyn is. Some dead man, the mountain replies, eager to get fighting. The viper dances around him, patiently explaining that he's Oberyn Martell, a prince of Dorne, and Princess Elia was his sister. You know, the one you raped and murdered before also murdering her children. And this is how it goes for quite a while, Gurm building the suspense of the fight by having Oberyn use the tried-and-true brawn method of dueling, which is to tire out the big dumb lug in the steel armor. Over and over again, the viper tells the mountain that the mountain raped his sister, murdered her, killed her children. It throws the mountain off, annoys him, and he does indeed start flagging. The viper keeps darting in with his spear, which is significantly longer than the mountain's six-foot greatsword, a whole two feet longer, going for the eyes, for his belly, for his throat, and mostly scraping off armor. You raped her. You murdered her. You killed her children, the viper keeps shouting. At one point, the mountain just charges at him like a bull, and Oberyn has to drop the spear, backing off and defending himself with his polished round shield, backing into the crowd surrounding the battle. An unfortunate stable boy doesn't get out of the way in time, and the mountain lops off his arm. When the boy starts screaming, the mountain tells the stable boy to shut up and slices the top of his skull off, which is less reasonable than an apology. Elia, the viper shouts at the mountain, you raped her, you murdered her, you killed her children, now say her name. The mountain does not say her name. It's the sun that finally evens the odds, breaking out through the clouds. The viper uses his shield to tip the light up into the mountain's visor, making the mountain bring his arm up, exposing the joint in his armor at his armpit. In goes the spear with a twist. Elia of Dorne, say her name, the viper demands, putting the spear through the back of the mountain's knee too. The mountain finally collapses to his knees and the viper takes a run at him, shouting his sister's name and pinning the mountain to the ground with half the viper's spear through his belly. Oberyn takes the mountain's sword and puts his foot on his chest, screaming at the mountain to say Elia's name before he dies. Just as, the, as Oberyn's about to do more damage, the mountain grabs the viper's leg and literally drags him down to the mountain's chest, holding him as close as a lover to tell Oberyn, Elia of Dorne, I killed her screaming whelp. And then he pauses to like crush Oberyn's eyes into his sockets. Then I raped her. Pause to poach Oberyn's teeth out, punch Oberyn's teeth out. Yep. Mm -hmm. Then I smashed her fucking head in like this. And then he smashes Oberyn's head in. Mm. Yeah. So part five. Tyrion tosses his breakfast. So Tyrion throws up, knowing he'd put his life in the viper's hands and the viper had dropped it. He doesn't hear Tywin when the words are said to condemn him, but Tyrion is escorted to the black cells, and that's the end of the chapter. Uh... So pretty intense. It was an intense fight. Everyone was like... He's going to win it. At one point, Tyrion even turns to um, uh, Alaria um, Oberyn's... Chick. Uh, ch Paramore. Yeah. Alaria said. Paramore. Yes, thank you. His paramour. He's like, I feel less dead already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feeling good. Yeah. 
Uh, do you ever have those like scenes in movies or books or whatever where you know it's not going to go well, but each time you rewatch or reread, you're just like praying like, oh, I know Mufasa's not going to die this time. He's not going to die this time. <laughs> and like this heart, in your heart of hearts, you believe that this time it'll be different. I don't think I have the opportunity to rewatch The Lion King as much as you do, but I get what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a horror movie where uh, you think it's all over, that everything's going to be fine, uh-huh. and then it jumps out of the mirror again. It doesn't, yeah. Yeah, it's not fine. It's never fine. Or if your family's going to die, fine. it's terrible. Germ's motto, it's never fine. It's never fine. <laughs> that is Germ's motto. <laughs> what is that in Latin? That goes under his crest. It's never fine. <laughs> yeah, and I and I had that when he keeps saying, you killed, you raped her. What is... But he says you you repeated it like four times and I still can't remember it, Brooke. But yeah, so 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 Oberyn says you raped her, you murdered her, you killed you her killed children, children, and yeah. unfortunately, before the mountain kills Oberyn, he admits that no, he killed her children first, then he raped her, then he killed her. Which is if you didn't think the first get one right get any worse, yeah, yeah, it can get a lot worse. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty bad. I kept thinking of, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. (laughs) Prepare to die. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. (laughs) Oh, he just keeps yelling it at the guy. Obviously, the outcome was very different in the end, but... I wonder if that was an inspiration for Gurm. It might have been, because I just watched... It is familiar. Nikki was gone the other night, and I was like, children, sit down. It's time for some education with Daddy. We're watching The Princess Bride tonight. <laughs> and nice. as we were preparing for this podcast... You should homeschool your kids, out. Matt. I really should. They'd be so much better off. <laughs> Public education. Uh, but yeah, it's to, even, even to the point where the guy he's fighting gets frustrated, right? Because the six-fingered man gets frustrated as well. He's like, stop saying that, just like Gregor does. It was cool to see the similarities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Except Inigo wins. Spoiler alert. Yeah. In in one in one situation, you have a character you fully believe is going to win in in Yugo Montoya, and in the other case, you mm-hmm. have how is Oberyn pulling this off? There's no way he could win this, and of course he doesn't. he's going to win it though. Yeah. He's actually going to do it. Yeah. Nope. It's it's so frustrating the hubris that this guy has. Like you can see it from moment one when Tyrion rides up to greet all the people from Dorne in that chapter so long ago. Just how much yeah. hubris this guy has. Like this fight is over. <laughs> Grab his longsword, bash at his head until he dies. What are you doing? Ugh. Yeah. It's just sickening. And what if yeah, he wants, of course, is the confession. So it makes sense from his perspective as a character, I understand, but it's still frustrating. You couldn't have forced the confession though from a little bit further back? Just like <laughs> Five feet back, maybe. Yeah. It reminds I mean, me of the the Chris Rock bit he's pinned from to the ground by then. Like, just you can stand back. From bigger and blacker, Chris Rock, bit, Chris Rock has a mm-hmm. has a bit where uh, he he goes on. He's like, it's just like the police; they can have all the evidence in the world. They know you're guilty. What they want is the confession. <laughs> they can have all the evidence in the world, but they want the confession. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and it's exactly what Oberyn wants, right? He just needs that yeah. confession. Yeah, it almost feels like empty because 
Gregor Clugain is such like he's just a tool, right? Like he should have yeah, been demanding that to him. Yeah, no, and, and yeah, you'll get some small measure of relief out of of, of hearing him confess. But it's really time when you want to be, you know, sticking a yep. spear through and yep. pinning to the ground and demanding confession. So it, it's it's so wasteful. And then and then on top of it, he also got the news that his sister's death was even worse than he thought. Yep. Like it's oh, and then he died. Yeah, so it was pretty bad. Which is wasteful again, but so, such such are the lives of men, I suppose. <sighs> We're gonna get yeah in this in this universe. Mm-hmm. Um, one uh, interesting thing that I did pick up just on my second read of this chapter for doing my summary is, at one point Tyrion observes the crowd control that the Kingsguard are trying to do. Mm-hmm. It's these thousand people who want to like inch in on this fight. I'm kind of imagining like an alley bum fight where everyone's just kind of like getting closer and closer. People are pushing from the back so they want a better yep. better look at the at the bloodshed. And seven and, Kingsguard uh, members to hold them back. Yeah, well, he counts six, oh, which right. is correct. There are because, six. Yep, who's yeah, because there? there's one down in Dorne. But that means that Jamie was there doing mm-hmm. crowd control and Tyrion didn't recognize him. I wonder who was guarding the king. Yeah, That's I don't still know. Still, something this was a mistake that's so or... baffling to me. It might be a mistake. Yeah, it's it's still so baffling to me. You don't think Jamie would hasn't see even it? he hasn't even thought of. They oh. don't even think of each other in these last he does, few chapters. He does mention Jamie once in this chapter. He does think think of him yes. once. He thinks he would rather have Bronn or even better Jamie as his but, champion. But that's I, it. Like that's and never just... like in the sense of gosh, I wish I could talk to Jamie right now. Like nothing. That's yeah. crazy to me. No, but I And I same with like Jamie Deterian. I feel like he's thoroughly given up on his family at this point though. Yeah. Like he he doesn't even look for Tywin for like a, a measure of, of pity or or sanctuary, nothing. Like he's mm-hmm. like, Oh no, the, the, Tywin and Cersei are dead to me. All I want to do is screw them over before I die right. too. It's funny, I think I had a note about that in my notes about is this the you moment did. where Tyrion finally Oh, did I put that in the dad notes? Maybe. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And and also on that note, on a slightly lesser note, but related, crowd control seems like kind of a, seems like kind of a beneath the Kingsguard duty. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Why not get the gold cloaks? The the, the city watch. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like something great for the police force to to handle. I'm also kind of surprised. Getting the secret service out and having them do crowd (laughs) control just seems off. I'm I'm kind of surprised that. Oberon agreed to the terms of fighting in that location. He knows mm-hmm. his strategy is going to be to run around in whatever space is available, and mm-hmm. having people crowd in all the time. I mean, maybe he didn't have any control over it, I suppose, but it just seems I like a bad was, idea all yeah. around. Why would you ever fight there? They started with a lot of space, because at the beginning like of the old. battle, yeah, they described that they were about 50 feet apart before they like started at each other. Yeah. So if you're thinking of, like a diameter of 50 feet, that's not bad. What you're yeah. talking about with like the people being around them. Yeah, yeah. just getting closer and closer, and yeah. and also seven seven dudes keeping crowd back in a in a, in a exactly. fifty feet di- uh, diameter space. Forget it. Yeah, they that's what I mean. It. It's, it seems it seems flaw, it's like a flawed idea to begin with. Died. It's like it's the first mm-hmm. time they've ever had to do this. Like, oh, somebody requested trial by battle. Oh shit, where do we do that? This hasn't been around for how yeah, many hundreds of years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, if we're if we're done with Oberon, we got the whole Shay thing going down. Yeah, it's pretty. Oh, Stad. Yeah. Yeah. Say oh, your line. Yeah. Uh, little little Shakespeare, Song of Ice and Fire mashup here. Et tu uh-huh. Bruce? <laughs> Huh? <laughs> Phrase of the day, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. She the the giant of Lannister thing was the killer. Not just because it made everyone laugh, but because personally that would be so so mean to Tyrion. That is yeah. not something he asked her to say. She came up with that on her own. She and went full Monty. Yeah, oh, it's awful. So awful. Pick like the thing that he's most most uh shame isn't the right word sensitive about conscious yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah right yeah and and pick that Uh, that's so it's awful and And the fact that he never once asked her to she made that up on her own back in the day right that's what i mean yeah it's not his idea that was something she came the trial yeah okay no that's something she came up with forever ago that he had nothing to do with and now she's throwing it in his face it just proves that while We've been saying, oh, I know I've been saying throughout this thing with Shay, like, you gotta remember who she is, gotta remember, you know, whatever, but this is above and beyond, this is above and beyond just protecting her skin. She had mm-hmm. it in the bag before she let out Giant of Lannister. She didn't have to say she that. She didn't yeah. have to throw that in, and for that, I give you, Shay is a bitch. <laughs> totally. <laughs> she is ambitious. Oh. Yeah. That, that's that's where song number two comes in. But, uh, by the Smashing Pumpkins, the song Ava Adore. Brooke, that might it might go back to your guys' high school days because I think yeah. I was in middle school when it came out. I remember out. 1979. Oh, I, remember it. I couldn't tell yeah. you the lyrics, though. Uh, it's Billy you Corgan that I... Billy Corgan is so high-pitched. Oh, he's beautiful. I love <laughs> Billy Corgan. Um, it, he's singing. He sings. It's, uh, Shay to Tyr- Tyrion to Shay. Think of Tyrion. He says, uh, it's you that I adore. You'll always be my whore. You'll be a lover in my bed and a gun to my head. We must never be apart. That's the chorus of the song. Um, just perfect. He's recognizing how bad she is for him, but he still just can't. The refrain, in you I see dirty, in you I count stars, in you I feel so pretty, in you I taste God, in you I feel so hungry, in you I crash cars. We must never be apart. You'll be a lover. Number two. That's pretty good, and it's ah, oh, it's kind of like bittersweet for this ending too. Mm-hmm. It's good, good, good choice. Nice. All I remember about Smashing Pumpkins is that the video for 1979 had a guy with a shaved head. I think it was Corrigan sitting in the middle of the back seat, and you'd keep looking in the rearview mirror and seeing him. And so we'd mm-hmm. always put my friend who had a shaved head in the back seat in the middle <laughs> and put that song on. <laughs> And make Shout out to Dan to if you. you ever listen. Hey Dan. Nice. Uh sing it, Dan. Sing the song. No, he would just sit there like kind of looking uncomfortable. He, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't he wasn't Why the is actor. This happening guy. To me? He, he wasn't the actor uh completely uh out there personality. Well, you know, she had more of a role than just being a betrayer in, in this trial. Before she gave her testimony, before she was a witness. The chapter would indicate that Tyrion was probably going to take the black. 
Mm. He was going to confess and he was going to, you know, pray for the mercy of his father, be sent to the wall. He like, he remembers that uh, the Lord commander up there was like, yeah, we, we need clever men as well as strong men. You know, he was right. like, oh, I'll have to take the vows. I, it means I have to give up my claim to Casterly Rock and Winterfell, but uh, I think there's a brothel around there somewhere brothel. I heard about. So I don't think it'll be so bad. <laughs> like he was, he was on board. And right. then Shade dropped that just disgusting, dirty bomb. And he was like, Get her Fuck out of it. here. Yeah. Trial by yep. Yeah. Let's he got this. he got goaded into it. Good job, Cersei. I mean, people people say all the time that Cersei's such an awful player, but she pulled that string perfectly. And uh, she's done that a couple times with Tyrion here. We talked about last time how she did that with Bronn too. She she offered uh, Bronn something that Tyrion hadn't, and good on her for that too. She totally played him. Yeah. And how about her reaction to him demanding trial by battle, like Tywin. Tywin, for once, not in control. He's totally thrown. He's frustrated. Cersei just jumps at it, though. Yeah, yeah, trial by battle. I got the, I got the mountain. He's right here. Let's do it now. Like she's all. You on see board her in the corner like, doing like, yes, yes. She's like, pump. super excited. Yeah. And it's it, Tyrion doesn't mention it because he doesn't know. But you got to think that Tywin went purple in the face because he thought that Tyrion was going to pick Jaime. Mm. Yeah, oh. maybe. Although yeah. I, th- I think he was equally purple when he realized it was Oberyn because he can't win there either. Right. Yeah. Oberyn yeah. wins, he loses the mountain. Oberyn loses, then Dorne's pissed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Uh I I do this I do this with Jamie all the time, so I, I figure I should I should do it with Tyrion too, so that I'm not cheating. Tyrion's kind of an a hole. He's just oh, yeah. he's he's totally he's ta- he's thinking of Simeon, uh the the singer that he had murdered. And He's just totally casual about about his death. Like, ah, no big deal. Like, not, no sort of, no feeling bad about it. Not, you know, like, what a jackass. He thinks he should have learned the rest of the words to that Yes, song right, that's, that's his regret. That's his only regret. That's his regret. <laughs> I should have learned the words. Oh, too bad. Too bad he's not around to teach me. But it it reminds me a little bit of Breaking Bad, and I'm I'm in a... For our listeners, I'm at a very crucial point of the series, and I don't want to spoil it for everyone, so close your ears if you don't want to be spoiled and you haven't seen it. It's really old now, so you should have seen it already. But Where Walter is, is whistling, just totally carefree, after a, a day after they've murdered a child. Mm-hmm. And it's just, just it reminded me of Tyrion here. He's just like, he's murdered this person, and he thinks nothing of it. Nothing. He just It's just part of, part of his day. Awful. He definitely has his yeah. moments. Yep. Yeah, there's a very clear human value pyramid in King's Landing. Yeah. I think that absolves a lot of people from feeling any yeah. guilt about. Yeah. Yeah. But on occasion, we say things like Tyrion is looking after the small folk, and Tyrion's thinking of the people in in King's Landing, and he's trying to make things better for everyone. And well, he's he can be as too. cunning as the next guy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Ruthless. Got a bit of his dad in him, maybe. How about, uh, I love the way you did it in your summary, Brooke, about uh, unspeakable things. Uh, oh, gross. <laughs> oh, Oberyn, like... He made me do shameful things. And I Matt, your tweet... Oberyn, like, almost asleep. <laughs> wakes up, yeah. And he's it... like, what? Tell me more. It could have only been improved if he'd have said, like in the back of a Volkswagen. I like to pick up girls on the rebound for 
disappointing relationship. They're, they're more vulnerable, they're much more in need of solace, and they're uh, fairly open to suggestion. And I use that to fuck them someplace fairly uncomfortable. Well, like the back of a Volkswagen. Yeah! <laughs> Chocolate covered pretzels. Yeah, small rats, we get it. Small rats, Brooke. We get it. I got it. <laughs> Everyone gets it. Um, yeah, that was good. <laughs> I kind of wanted to elaborate too, but it sounded like she was getting at butt stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like she was getting everything. <laughs> Maybe some ear stuff. Who knows? It was all the stuff. Yeah. Unspeakable, shameful things. Yeah. Definitely let, allows the mind to wander as you start to consider the different parts of a human's body and how those parts can be violated. Let's, <laughs> let's not dwell. I imagine that was a little bit of Circe's hand, too. Circe was really, like, making this a pious affair with mm-hmm. uh, painting over yeah. Gregor's shield, shield. with the seven-point oh, star. Yeah. Yeah. Having, having, yeah, having the, the uh, High Septon <laughs> open the, the ceremony, the battle ceremony, I guess. And then, yeah. and then making Shay into this sweet, innocent, mm-hmm. empathetic creature. Yeah. Mm. 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 Good job, mm. Circe. We don't give you enough credit for being horrible. Horrible. I'm good at it. Halitosis. <laughs> well, that was a big chapter. It was. So big discussion. Totally worth it. But anything else on, on old Tyrion and what went down in this multi-parted chapter? I'm good. Nope. Your your chapter, uh, your, your section titles reminded me of um, Sunny in Philadelphia episode titles <laughs> oh yeah me that was subconscious i don't know <laughs> all right uh scad you got danny i do and this one is a reasonably short summary excellent silver hair and purple eyes always on the go kicking it with the dragon kids and jorothy and oh she knows just where she gotta go and won't be tarrying look out westerosa comes daenerys targaryen all right Daenerys Stormborn lives like the god of the sky in the great pyramid that towers over Marine. She nibbles on some breakfast as she watches her children chase each other through the skies. She thinks about religion of her little scribe Missandei's homeland of Nath, which sounds wonderful, before dressing for court. She really is, Danny, a little girl playing conqueror and dress-up. But the thing is, she has conquered, though. Karth with her intelligence and instinct, Astapor with planning and ruthlessness, Yunkai with her beauty and cunning... And finally, Marine with a true-to-form siege through the gates, while infiltrators from her inner circle got inside the walls through the sewers and cut the ropes of bondage free from their slaves inside the city. After conquering the city, she remembers the 163 children that were posted up along the road to Marine, and repaid the debt, taking 163 leaders of Marine and nailing them to wooden posts. <sighs> anyway, Danny holds court. Only two visitors this time, a little surprising. One seeks to offer the hand of King Cleos of Astapor to, uh, to Danny. A sphincter says what? She left a council to rule in Astapor after freeing it. Yeah, that council didn't work out. This former butcher murdered the council and was declared king. Another <laughs> sigh. Next, a trader tells her how poor Astapor is, with no slaves to sell. Slaves this trader was counting on picking up when he stopped in. Won't she please sell him some slaves? Triple sigh. Regrettably, Danny allows the Marinese to sell themselves into slavery so trade can continue and so they won't die of starvation. The ugly business behind there 
Now comes the truly hideous business, dealing with her lying and traitorous knights. They helped her win the city, playing a crucial role in navigating the sewers and freeing the slaves. But is that enough to overpower the deceit from Danny's own perspective? Barristan convinces her with tales of Targaryen history and how he's worried about the true Targaryen line of kings and is Danny kind of crazy like some of the Targaryens have been, but beseeches her that she has earned his loyalty. Jorah, though, doesn't fare so well. While Barristan is forgiven, Jorah goes in with a different approach. Trying to minimize his transgressions, he comes to her hurt and angry, insisting that he did no true harm, but when he indicates that he was still sending reports from Karth and that he informed Robert's council that she was carrying Rhaegar, or, sorry, Rhaego, uh, his fate is sealed. She can't forgive him. She cannot forgive this. She sends him away. He should have been begging forgiveness, not explaining his reason, she thinks. That night, Danny is restless. The events of the day running through her mind, and even a little eerie love isn't enough to get her to sleep. She arises and watches the city wake up in all its colorful glory, and in that moment decides she will not march. She will stay and learn to rule. And that's how the chapter ends. When uh, when Jorah was making his very poor case, I, I, I thought of the, Hold me now, it's hard for me to say I'm sorry. <laughs> That's my other song. Is that Paris Supply? Uh, Chicago. Oh. <laughs> it really shouldn't uh, that, be hard that, for him that... to say he's sorry. See, that scene reminded me of our conversation last episode about Ross from Friends. Uh-huh. Why that whole situation. And I haven't seen all the episodes and I haven't seen, you know, all of his cases for the break. But why wasn't he just like apologizing instead of doubling down and making excuses? Say you're sorry. It's a lesson that you just you have to learn early on. Just say you're sorry. Yeah. I mean these you know, these these knights, these highborn people, they're not they're not gifted with that. that, Yeah, Yeah, they're not gifted with the ability to have to have uh Humility. Humility, yeah. They they have no idea. Even Barristan even Barrison doesn't really say he's sorry. What he says is, I had very good reason for wanting to vet you before I served mm-hmm. you loyally. He doesn't apologize either. But, right. but his behavior is much less... Uh, yeah, there's, there's a kind of an implied humility there with... Yeah, I what, think with... it's much less deceitful too than what Jorah did, right? Sure, yes. Oh, absolutely. Much less, not, not, more, not, more, not less deceitful, less damaging... Uh huh. Yeah. It, it wasn't. We we talked about how Barristan is maybe a little bit petty. Was it also kind of a little petty when he started piling on in this chapter too? <laughs> no, no. I heard you. I heard the reports. I was there. I know what you said. Tell her what you said. Tell her. Yeah. He. It's also. It wasn't. It wasn't very well played. He should have waited for Jorah to deny it if he really wanted to stick the knife in. Yeah. If he'd waited for Jorah to deny it, then he could have said, "Don't you dare deny it. I was there." <laughs> But yeah, he definitely <laughs> oh, jumped the gun. Barry. Oh, he Barry. is. He's, he can be quite small, but he does it so well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because <laughs> it's, so it's all wrapped in in honesty, right, and truth. So yeah, yes, yeah. you can't be that angry about it. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. I don't actually have a ton of this uh, on this chapter, but uh, mainly just, I guess, Jorah. Is he? 
is he one of the three treasons that she talks about? I don't I don't actually think he is. I don't know how you guys feel about it. Yeah, because I don't think it's really love. Well, yeah, it, it might have been for money. I don't know. Yeah, the way the way that's the way that's said in the prophecy is uh, three treasons: once for blood, once for gold, I think, and once for love. But he doesn't betray her for love. He loves her and betrays her for a trip home. I don't I don't even know what you would call that because it could be gold, but not really. So I don't I don't actually think he is he is one of her treasons. Well, he it could be seen in that he betrayed her love for him and even though her love wasn't the same as his love for her in a romantical sense she very much you know loved him mm. in the sense of but it's not really uh, how it's written though to protect her and stuff betrayed be for love way. betrayed, for, betrayed love. for love yeah meaning you betrayed once, me once for, for love blood, once for gold once for love like you betrayed Maybe it's me because... the love of his homeland or something yeah it's a stretch yeah, i feel like ah. Us even discussing this and trying to like find ways to like reinterpret the yeah. words means that it wasn't that. Like it wasn't him. Uh, it's got to yeah. be bigger. It's got to be. It's got to be more impactful, more right. epic betrayal. Yeah, like Mary like her thinking like was about blood, this. But... Is, yeah, her yeah. thinking about this right now is almost like a germ trying to mislead us a little bit. Yeah. Or misdirect us. Well, I think I think it's just a indicative of of where Danny is. She has. Mm-hmm. She just has no peace. She's always. I mean, we talked about this in the House of the Undying chapter a long time ago. But she just has no. She has no rest. She's always wondering how all that shit that she saw is going to come home to roost. Always wondering who and will betray her. Always wonder whether she's right, doing the right thing. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pull something out here. This is. This is quite possibly <laughs> the most vague, deep pull we've ever had. You guys ever see the movie Kroll? No. Kroll? Okay. Google it later. It's this kind of awful uh, sci-fi adventure movie from like the early 80s. And in that, there are cyclopses. And they got one eye. From, they used to have two, and now they only have one. Because they traded somebody, a god or something, they traded one eye for the ability to see the future. But they got mm. tricked, and they didn't really give them the, the ability to see the future. All they can see is their own death. And it's it's like that for Danny. Like she, all she's everywhere she looks, she sees her own her own betrayal, and she can't she can't <laughs> nice. ever feel at peace, right? Hmm. Yeah, interesting that all the stuff that happened in that pro in the House of the Undying, and it's this one betrayal line that always comes back to her. Yeah, to what you're saying, Scott. Yeah, that's the thing that sticks out the most to her out of everything that she saw in there. Yeah, it's the betrayal stuff that sticks with her. Hmm. Yeah, it is mostly it seems to be. Oh, I'm nice. not gonna lie. After after the excitement of the like the John chapter and the Tyrion chapter, I was like, oh, Danny, ah. Yeah, thank, okay. thanks for giving it to me. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there's not much here. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess one thing, uh, Danny did kind of give in already on the slavery issue. Didn't take long. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> this, this whole leadership thing, isn't this? This whole ideal of no slaves. Doesn't always mesh with the real world situation they're in, right? Right. I also liked reading about her uh, trouble justifying what she did to those Miranese leaders. She comes back to it like twice, I think, where she's wondering. It was just. She, it's like she's trying to convince mm-hmm. herself. I, I, I had to do it. It was just. It was just, right? 
she's second guessing herself. She does it with Jorah too. Their decision to send off Jorah. I should have killed him. You know, so she is. She's she's second guessing herself here. This isn't going as well as she thought it should have. I guess uh, we haven't done one of these in a while. Let's do one real quick. Asakan Susmapas for Nath. Mm. Mm-hmm. So if you want to know where Masande is from, it's mentioned a few times in the book, but uh, Nath is directly south of the Smoking Sea, like the old Valeria. So it's it's directly south of that, kind of uh, west of Sothorio. So you can find that on the Essos map uh, in the book. Um, Very small. Kind of, it's kind of a sickle-shaped island. Kind of cool-looking. Yeah, very tiny. Yeah, it's cool. It's, it's, it's got, like, uh, people that come and try to settle there that aren't from Nath, they get, like, really sick. And they get, like, this some sickness, and they all end up dying when yeah. they do. War of the Worlds And they think shit. it's because yeah. of a, a virus that these butterflies have that live on Nath. Hmm. And it infects them. But the Nath people, the Nathy, I don't know what you'd call them, uh, the Nathites, they, uh, they're kind of just immune to it by now, but. I guess Natharenians, but Natharenians, okay. yeah, Natharenians, Nathganistanannies, Natharians. There you go. I, they Anyways. might just be called the Nath. The uh, Nath, probably. Anyway, I think we spent enough time on that. My bad. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> no, it's my bad. You tried to no, stop. Thank and you. I just took us right back into it. Uh, gosh. I feel like we didn't spend a ton of time, but do we need to? Is there anything else on Danny here? I mean, really, it's just about what happens with Barristan and Jorah. Barristan kept, Jorah gone. And then off on, and then the big decision of uh, not leaving. Yeah, true. Good point. We should probably talk about that real quick. She's basically, t- strangely enough, <laughs> she's decided to not follow Jorah's advice again. And uh, she's sticking around to... Mm-hmm. learn how to rule these people. I don't know whether, you know, it was the people that came to court that day that helped her realize, like, the decisions I've made were bad. It didn't work out at all. I need to figure out this leadership shit. Well, mm-hmm. I better stay and figure out how to do it. There are some butchers going to just take over, so... Right. Which is insightful of her. But to us yeah. readers, it's kind of like, oh we'll my see. gosh, I'm going to get more of this crap. <laughs> All this time we're waiting for this big attack on Westeros, or I don't know if it's attack, but the big triumphant return of Daenerys Targaryen to Westeros, and it's like, oh, she's going to stay. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting uh, little little trip. She had to stop in Astapor to get an army. Then she decided to keep going to Yunkai. Then again, Another she decided city. to keep going to Marine. And you don't, I don't, I don't remember, but I don't, I don't remember getting a really good look into her brain as to, like, why she was doing that. She kind of caught, got caught up in the mission creep of freeing yeah. slaves. Right. After that first time, I was like, ooh, that felt good. Yeah. Do it again. Yeah. Anyway. Mm. All right. Move on. Let's move on. Uh, Brooke, you want to finish us out with Jamie? I didn't realize I gave you the two Lannister brothers. Sweet. Hell yeah, you did. Nice. Thanks for that. And I gave Scab the two chicks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Look at me. Sorry, Scat. That's all right. Why would you? The Sansa chapter. The, the Sansa chapter was awesome. The Danny one was a little blah. Really? The, the Sansa chapter was so boring to me. Oh, really? I loved it. Oh. I I honestly try to go off of. Uh, There's a lot of humping. You didn't like that? You know. Did you enjoy that. Matt likes his humping quiet. <laughs> it, 
It depends on who's being humped. Yeah, like a less obnoxious something. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. So. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand? Jamie Lannister got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead it doesn't matter, reason bottom line is this the treason. At deepest side, could there be something only if you can see a evil? Could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister. <laughs> this is sort of like a, a walk around chapter for Jamie. We just kind of follow him, sort of like camera over the shoulder. So that morning, Jamie is sitting on the small council with King Tommen and Kevin, watching his son enthusiastically decree the lives of his disloyal and his loyal subjects for the thrill of using a quill. Edmure Tully and Brendan Blackfish, no more lands or titles for you. River Run goes to Emon Frey and Lady Jenna, formerly of Lannister. Ruse Bolton, you're now Warden of the North. Your bastard son is also legitimate. Roth Spicer, you get Castamere Castle, and you're a lord now. Great job. Westerlings, you're all pardoned. Even Jane, welcome back to the King's Peace. Thanks, Tommen. Jamie gets out of there as quick as he can because it's super boring, and he's sore from practicing left-handed sword fighting with Sir Adam Marbrand on the sly. Sir Marbrand has soundly kicked his one-handed ass, and they'd been... If they had been really fighting, Adam would have killed him over two dozen times. He then goes out to the stables to see off Steel Shanks Walton, who is escorting Arya Stark to her new lord husband, Ramsay Bolton. That's right, Ramsay Bolton, not Ramsay Snow. She looks suspiciously unStark-like to Jamie, but he doesn't really care if she's truly Arya Stark or not. It's going to get the job done. His attention is then caught by the bloodstains still in the outer ward from when Gregor Clegane had hacked down the stable boy during um, the trial by battle. Jamie blames Boris Blout, who had been distracted by the fight when he should have been keeping the crowd well back. Uh, the mountain is now paying for his deeds, and his screams can be heard throughout the castle as nothing Grand Maestro Pycelle does can heal the brutal wounds he took from the Red Viper spear. The wounds ooze, maggots won't touch them, cutting away the rot and treating it with boiling wine and moldy, blood, moldy bread doesn't work as it apparently should. Moldy Leeches, bread does not working? I know, it it's so weird, works. right? Ah. <laughs> it works for breakfast. That's the cure-all <laughs> Westeros ingredient. Yeah, and uh, leeches put to his skin just, like, suck his blood and then die. His veins are turning black. And the mountain keeps seizuring so bad that they have to gag him to keep from biting his tongue off. Good so Pice, Yeah, it's, it's not good. It's not good, but probably well-deserved. I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, the screams would really bug me, though. Pycelle begged Tywin to delay the remaining Dordishmen to make them tell Pycelle what poison the Red Viper had used on his spear. But Tywin will not add insult to Oberyn's death. He's got to be real sweet to Dorne right now, since there are reports of Stannis sailing out of Dragonstone, possibly south. If Stannis appeals to the Dornishmen to side with him in the war... 
the war might be prolonged for years, um, and then also Marcella would be in trouble. So Tywin commands Pycelle to get Healing Gregor right quick so the king's justice can take his head off. Whatever needs to be done. And so the mountain that rides screams night and day. Jamie reflects that Tywin Lannister could cow anyone, even the stranger, so it would seem. Jamie then goes to his bedchamber, uh, hoping to get some rest for all of his fighting soreness, but finds a Cersei waiting for him, looking beautiful and tempting as usual. She's pissed off because Tywin is shipping her off to Casserly Rock to get her out of Tommen's ear, and he's marrying Tommen to Marjorie Tyrell, a well-used widow at this point, and he wants to marry off Cersei again, and Jamie won't quit the Kingsguard to be with her, and Jamie won't give her sweet loving in the White Tower, and she would have mm-hmm. been heir to Casserly Rock if only she'd been born with a cock, and the world just keeps giving Cersei crosses to bear. Jamie has limited sympathy. That's how that whole conversation goes. He ends up calling for Sir Loras to bring Brienne of Tarth to the tower. Brienne seems to have convinced Loras that she was telling the truth about Renly's murder. And it was probably helped along by Jamie um, trying to get Sir Loras to see reason. She's looking good in a blue dress. And Jamie even compliments her on it, a little surprised at himself. He tells Brienne that the Arya Stark riding north to marry Roose Bolton isn't actually the Arya Stark, mostly to save Brienne the hassle of charging out after them as he expects she would. He then gifts her the sword that her that his father had pushed on him, the one forged from Ned Stark's Valerian steel, and charges her with keeping the respect their respective oaths to Catelyn Stark to see Sansa safe, even though Jaime is pretty sure. Sansa is the one who killed Joffrey, which he's not upset about because he really never liked the kid. He asks Brienne to name the blade Oathkeeper and sends her on her way. And that's pretty much the end of the chapter. She's got the sword. She's going after Sansa because Cersei is most definitely sent out some sort of force to hunt Sansa down and get the truth out of her, or get some sort of justice out of her. Mm-hmm. And... um yeah, Jamie uh, doesn't believe that uh, Tyrion did kill Joffrey. He admits that Tyrion has tried to be like Jamie since he could take his first steps, but definitely won't follow him into Kingslaying. It's good to know. They're, they are actually thinking of each other, just not super deeply. Yeah, that still puzzles me a little bit. Why do you think Jamie got so irritated with Brienne at the end? Like, he kind of reverted back to jerk Jamie. Like, he was he pretty like- jerky there at the end. Is yeah. he just like having a hard time with his new outlook on life of trying to be a good guy or something? <laughs> no, I, I hate to break her. it to you, it's because he's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> no, but his his attitude towards Brienne had changed quite a bit lately, and now all of a sudden, and he was still throwing in little jabs here and there, but he kind of he went back to clear back when they were with Vargo Hope way of treating her there at the end. I I, I noticed that too, and I would say it's because. As he was trying to give her the sword and explain the whole Arya and Sansa situation, she kept on assuming that he wanted her to go and kill right. Sansa. And he's like, stop it. Stop it. You're being an idiot. Like, at <laughs> the beginning of that conversation, he had remarked that, you know, they know each other so well. And she guessed that he doesn't believe that Tyrion is the one who murdered Joffrey. And, oh, her eyes are so blue. And, oh, she actually looks like a woman in that dress, right? And then she goes ahead and, and disappoints him because he's 
you know, has ridiculous expectations. Oh, for this people. again. Yeah. Yeah. And then so his his defensive response to that is just to be an asshole. Right. Good explanation. Also, I like that. I'm going to go. I, I agree with that. I'm also going to go with, well, Matt, earlier in this cast, you brought up, you know, people that you kind of can't stand. And sometimes mm-hmm. in those efforts when you're like, maybe I should, maybe I should try harder and it's, you know, it's my fault for allowing them to affect me that way. And you go and kind of offer like a little, uh, a little peace offering of a conversation, but you intended to be quick and they latch on <laughs> and they want to keep talking about shit. And eventually you have to drive them away. Like Arya driving away Nymeria with rocks. Nymeria. Yeah. I thought of that too. I thought of Nymeria and the rocks. <laughs> I think it's part of that. It's like, I don't, I don't want to make this a thing. I'm not prepared to deal with this as a thing. It, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like and accept both of your explanations. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're totally right. He's uh, he's so torn on Brienne, and yeah. it will always be that way. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. I feel like as I'm getting older, I'm 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 getting much better at like not putting up with people. Right. <laughs> Even if they are, you know, well intentioned and good of heart, I'm just like, listen, I just don't have time to talk right now. <laughs> I, I gotta do work. Just go away. <laughs> Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye. Oh. <laughs> I would never do it to you guys. Don't worry. You did it to me yesterday. Did I? No, I'm just kidding. Oh. When? I was just kidding. So <laughs> like, you guys talked yesterday? We did. No, besides we all three recording of us a talked. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's uh. Eh, I just blame it on age. I'm okay with it. Fully fine. Yeah. I. I'm pretty. I'm better at it now too. Mm. Just turn around and look at my monitor. <laughs> but seriously, though, huge gift from Jamie, right? Despite oh my gosh, how he a treats her, sword. It's it, yeah. Despite how he treats her, all overcome by the fact that she gets this huge gift that has tremendous value, and also is, uh, I, I think, like a sign. Uh, it's meant to be a symbol, symbology, mm-hmm. of Jamie being really serious about keeping his oaths going forward. Mm. Yeah. Also, I think he wanted the sword out of his sight, right? It was kind of like the symbol for his break with Tywin mm-hmm. and a constant reminder of him not being able to wield it to his full ability. Yeah. So Never if he asked. had to give it away with no one asking questions or being weird about it, I mean, Brienne's pretty weird about it, but she's leaving right away, so... She's awkward mm-hmm. about everything anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's kind no of Brienne's MO. Yeah, so like I like I think I would have to think about it a little bit more, but I don't think it is as significant to his affection for her or his faith in her as we want it to be. Like I think it's really just getting it out of his sight. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. On the Could flip side, Jamie also has a moment where he thinks back, wishing that he would have been the one to kill Robert. Like Dick. Yeah. You're always going back and being like, "Ah, oh, the king's slaying. Yeah, I shouldn't have, shouldn't do that." Although not. Not that he was wrong in that one instance, but that he took an oath and he needs to keep his oath. And now he's talking about more Kingsland. What a dick. <laughs> I hate Jamie. <laughs> he's kind of, it's kind of similar to Tyrion. Like, oh, I didn't kill Joffrey. Yeah, I wish I, 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 I would have. Yeah. I wish I would have just done it. The Lannisters are just punks. Let's be honest. All of no, them they are just are. sniveling rich kid punks. To be fair, ah. there's only one person on Earth who didn't wish they'd killed Joffrey, and that was Cersei. <laughs> so, 
probably true. Everyone else is just like, well played, whoever no. it like, was. Think of anybody else. Well, anybody else at all. I can't. I, I almost said Tommen. I almost said Tommen, but I was like, eh, he probably kind of wished it too. Yeah, yeah, now that he now that he gets to press the seal onto all the letters he writes, he's like, you know what? I'm not missing Joffrey all of a sudden. He was kind of a jerk to me, and now I get to do the seal thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You, you don't ever hear it, but I I bet Joff just tormented the hell out of that kid. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Tommen's such a sweetheart. Joffrey probably jumped all over that. Yeah. Likes to read. I mean, come on, nerd alert. <sighs> nerd alert. Yeah, reading that sucks. I just watch um, the television adaptation. I don't bother to read. <laughs> too far. Too oh, far. You just subject. You silenced care, me. Careful. Careful. Oh. Good thing no exclusive TV watchers listen to our podcast. Phew. <laughs> All right. How about uh, how about Jane Westerling being uh, pardoned? Yeah. Yeah. Ross Spicer getting the Castamere Castle. That's a it's a sweet prize. Right. Yeah, it's that not being of, used by anyone right now. So. That kind of bears fruit to all our uh, speculations that the Westerlings were no good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Get what you want. I, I wonder what the point is of keeping Edmure Tully alive. The Freys aren't killing him yet. Got River Run now. I don't know. Oh, Maybe it's not that important to this conversation. But they're keeping Edmure alive, and that's weird to me. Um, Who needs him at this point? I think without getting spoilery, a good reason would be Tywin has explained before that you do have to be merciful, benevolent to your subjects. Oh, that's true. So, so that, you know, they do bend the knee. Mm-hmm. So, this could just yeah. be being kept alive as an example. Mm-hmm. Oh, what else you guys got on Jamie? Anything? Mm. Good. Yeah, I'm good. I don't want you to be kicking yourself after because you didn't say what you should have said. I don't ever kick myself. Not because I don't regret speaking about some things, but because I'm not you can't reach enough yourself. to reach myself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I feel you. I can't if I really swing my leg. <laughs> you got to get a good, like, run and start. Yeah. I'm usually <laughs> on the ground by the end of it. <laughs> it's much easier just to kick other people, which is a philosophy <laughs> my sons uh, embrace heartily. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, uh, let's end this segment of the podcast then and jump into Davos After Dark. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. We're going to now enter the realm of book spoilers in this segment that if you haven't ever listened to our podcast before, we call Davos After Dark, where we get all spoilery and talk about everything. So if you are reading the books for the first time, don't want to be spoiled, turn off the podcast now. Uh, but join us for our next episode, which is a Storm of Swords, chapters John 10, Arya 13, Samwell 4, John 11, and Tyrion 11. So two Johns and a back to Sam. That's chapters 73 through 77 in what will be our penultimate um, episode around a Storm of Swords, at least the, the chapter content. Don't use big words, Matt. Excuse me. Try not to ever again. Um, let's do it. Davos After Dark. All right. Davos After Dark. So uh, let's let's uh, let's jump to Scad's um, note that he made and that was referenced earlier. Is this the chapter where Tyrion finally says he's done with family? I mean, we know we've we've got a chapter with him next. Next episode we'll have the famous Jamie chapter where Jamie busts him out and then uh, talks to him about Taisha. 
But uh, is he done with family? What do you guys think? I think he's... I'm trying to think of, like... Go ahead. When he finally gets across the sea, he's not super anxious to get back, as I recall. I think he, mm-hmm. I feel, I think he feels lost. Yeah, yeah but he's... Where he wants to go, huh? Yeah, he's not, he's not longing for the cold embrace of the Lannisters. So, I would say that he's given them up as any sort of, like... He's given up his loyalty to the Lannister name, that's for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Scott? <sighs> Gotta read those chapters. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hesitate because I, I do think he, despite what you've said about, you know, he's not thinking about him, I think he does have some sort of unresolved, um, you know, questions with Jamie. And I, so I, I think he's always, though, thought of Jamie apart from everyone else in his family. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't know why that is. Uh, it seems like he uses Jamie less like a tool than everyone else, which is pretty much my theory on Jamie's whole character arc uh, up till now is that he's just used by everyone. But Tyrion isn't, mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be that way as much. Um, so yeah, I don't think he's given up on Jamie, but I think he's just, I think he just realizes he has to get out, which goes back to what Brooke was saying about taking the black. Like he has to just get out from under all of this Lannister bullshit. Maybe not right. individually. He hates Jamie, but He's got to get out from under all of this. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went back and read the 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 next Tyrion chapter with Jamie and that whole interaction and it's really sweet. The the two of them meeting up again and it, it pick up right where they left off with japing at each other and stuff like that. And then of course the whole Taisha thing comes out and mm-hmm. that kind of goes downhill. Um but yeah, so I, I like what you said about there's the rest of the family and then there's Jamie, right? And, so and only because they're both assholes and they get along so well. <laughs> Absolutely. They both got it in them. I, I just want to point out for our, our listeners, t- before we started this podcast, I think I listed Tyrion as my favorite character. Tyrion or Arya. And I've grown to like him a lot less <laughs> in, this, in this deep read-through. Is Arya still your favorite? Yeah, Arya or Davos, probably, yeah. What about you, Brooke? Is your favorite changed? Um, my favorite's always been John, and it has not changed. How about you? I'm still so Team Braun, it hurts. <laughs> Even though after this chapter, we will not actually hear from him again? Yet. Yep. You're done. You're done. Braun is done. Your favorite character? No more. He's not done. He's not done. <laughs> he's, just just He's, just He's just a step. How Stokeworth is just a step. <sighs> I can't on. believe yeah. like we had these whole chapters with nothing to do with Braun, and we still got him in here somehow. I cannot <laughs> believe it. it. I always do it. If I'm ever like quiet during a segment of the podcast, it's because I'm trying to think of a way to like needle Braun into the conversation. <laughs> Anyways, uh, okay. So moving on to Danny uh, and talking about the Miranese knot, um, which, uh, Scad, this was a note of yours. So remind us what the Miranese knot is, if you don't mind. Oh, Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> it's been too long since I, I read like a really good summary of it, but in my mind the Miranese knot is just this uh, – cacophony of plot 
plot twists that drive towards Marine and kind of keep Danny's plot line handicapped there. <laughs> or, or, uh, handicapped? Uh, uh, handcuffed there. Um, so it's just this knot of plots that have to get resolved before she can move on. That's the way I think of it. Um, but it, but, but this is, I, this might be a point I've made before too. To me, it's, it's, uh, just like John is getting training on the wall, Danny is getting training here about how to lead people and how to learn how to make mistakes and how to manipulate people and how to get them to do what they need. And this isn't, this isn't like a complicated thing that George ran into that he didn't know how to resolve all these plot points. This is exactly what George intended. This is Danny learning how to rule so that when she gets to Westeros, she knows what the hell she's doing. Mm-hmm. That's the way I interpret the whole thing. Right. Looking back on what we've known so far through a dance with dragons and everything, do you think, do you guys think it's working? Is she, I mean, is it paying off? Will it have done any good in the end? <sighs> These lessons of compromise and for me, it just, we've talked about this before and how I think Danny's just going to give up on the whole peace thing and you know, like, actually, I shouldn't say that because I attribute it back to Brennan Beefish and his essay about it. But, um, I mean, disappointment. It seems like Danny's just continually disappointed with this whole thing. Is is that an effective lesson in and of itself? That ruling isn't particularly fun? She's getting certainly life experience. Mm. <laughs> that counts for something. Like I got a giant yeah. internship. Giant ruling internship. It, and that's she's not really getting payoff, but she is getting experience. It's an unpaid I think it's, internship. Yeah, I think, I think it's dangerous to to write off kind of what what you're saying, Brooke. I'll steer your thunder a little. It's dangerous to write off experience as I just grew fed up with it. Well, mm-hmm. that in itself is learning, right? It is from, learning from something. what you've done, right. and maybe maybe she does get fed up, and she's like, you know what? Fuck it. My dragons are big enough. I'm taking shit, and I'm not going to compromise as much. But she will have learned some things about whether she is willing to compromise on slavery or whether she is whether she should go and sit publicly in a press box where people are going to feed her locusts or whether you know like all sorts of just life experiences that she's getting about someone with a target someone someone in charge she's getting it whether she likes it or not and even if she gets fed up with the experience it is experience that will be valuable to her all right i guess we'll see sometime It'd be oh, great maybe. If, if Drogon oh just ate her or something and the whole plot line just, the knot came completely free. Yeah. Just, I know a way to untie the knot. Burn the knot. <laughs> just burn it. So there's a great Wallflower song called Three Ways. And he's, and he's singing about, there's three ways out of every box. You climb out the bottom or you climb out the top. And he says there's three, reinforces there's three ways out of every box. And then he says, if you can't do either of those things, you just burn the box to the ground. And if you can't find your way out, then you just burn it to the ground. And then you disappear like smoke into the cloud. With how long Danny's friggin' <laughs> been in this place, that's sounding like a pretty viable option to this reader burn it to the ground yeah she's certainly tied up there for a while i i found this interesting we had two differing points about lysa i don't think we were making statements but we were at and 
asking questions uh, about Lysa and all her children that have died um, in their infancy. Uh, I posited that perhaps maybe it's an after effect from all the tansy tea that Hoster had given her. Um, what's the real moonshine? Not moonshine, obviously, but... Uh, uh, moon tea, right? Moon tea. Moon tea. Thank you. Um, totally forgot about what the name was. Um, that maybe it's a result. She had so much moon tea in her system, like Hoster overloaded her on it big time. Uh, and and that's had some after effects. And um, Scott, you, you asked the question of maybe she, she actually poisoned her other kids herself. Um, you yeah. know, going back to we know that Liza poisoned John. Uh, my my theory is is what do you is, think? Well, I don't know. Uh, I still haven't listened to that uh, Peter Baelish uh, Radio Westeros episode yet, so maybe they talk about this too. But um, my my theory is really like she and Peter are in cahoots the whole time, and mm-hmm. that he's basically telling her, "Yeah, keep taking that shit. Get rid of any kids he wants, and." Um, you know, get an get an heir so that he doesn't put you aside or something, but don't do any more and get rid of him. Um, and that mm-hmm. she's more than willing to do it because Peter's who she wants. Oh wow! Oh, I That's never even thought about that. Yeah. That's cool. I haven't looked. Up. That might be out there. I I haven't looked. The theory might oh. already be out there and stuff. I hope I'm not stealing I don't... It from someone. And not that I know of. But yeah, yeah that's yeah, really uh, messed up. I would only argue that. That she ends up complaining to um, Sansa, I think it was Sansa, somebody, Mm -hmm. anyways, that Catelyn was so fertile, and she was not. And every time Catelyn sent news of another healthy baby, like, she would be discouraged. So, meh. She she calls all her her dead children all her sweet babies and stuff like that. Yeah, she could just be saying that. Yeah, I can definitely see Peter manipulating her. Yeah, I can totally see that too. Just be, I mean, you're right. She has no real reason to to lie to Sansa, I suppose, other than the more you lie and lie and lie about something, the more it becomes the truth to you. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know how much I believe it. It's just a thought I had when she kept talking about all these kids that died and. It's certainly we we read about that all the time in Westeros that that you know kids are dying in childbirth all the time. So it, it's certainly not you know impossible, especially given John Aaron's right. age. Um, I don't know if their world is exactly like ours, but a man's ability to produce uh, a good seed does start to diminish the older they get. So mm-hmm. um, you know, it's certainly possible if they just all failed. Could be. All right. Anything else you guys want to talk about? What other things interested you? Brooke's really interested by the name Man Woody. My favorite. I think for obvious reasons. <laughs> Some I don't remember whose note it was, but somebody predict uh, had a note about Tyrion predicting it would be the last time that he sees his uncle Kevin. Yeah, that was mine. And it, it is. is. Uh, uh, to be again? to be fair, he does see Kevin during the trial by battle. So, yeah. but he says it was the last time he saw his uncle the night before. Right. Yep. You're it, right. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. But good him. job. Because <laughs> yeah. Kevin dies. Yep. Um, he does. He does. Uh, just taking a look here. Yeah, we've we've talked about. Uh, we've kind of talked about our ideas about uh, Littlefinger, and maybe Sansa being the 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 key that finally unravels Littlefinger and brings him crashing down. Mm. Um, 
because of his kind of obsession with her. Uh, we've kind of talked about that, right? But did this did, did this reading uh, give you any more ideas or more insight into what and if that's going to happen? And if so, what Sansa might do? Or how just, that might go down? Well, the way I saw it was you can tell that Peter wants to murder Liza. Like, mm-hmm. right when he sees her on the fingers. He sees her, like, coming down like a great ship in her big dress. Just just wants to lose it. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's very patient. I mean, he's been marinating her for years, decades even, to get where he is today. But with Sansa, I mean, they've had maybe, like, three or four intimate moments together. And already he's, like, admitted so Yeah, yeah, like, confessed so many of his secrets. Or at least, like, um, confessed, even though he's lying to her, he's he's telling her that he lies. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, anyways. Well, and, the, and in the very next chapter, I believe, it's the next one, he kisses her, right? Yeah. Yeah, he gets super creepy uncle. Yeah. Yeah, so so that just says to me that yeah, if if Peter Baelish can can play the long game through all of these hurdles and challenges like Liza, like Tywin Lannister, like friggin' like multiple kings, then the evidence that he can be so easily undone by this young girl means that that is his primary weakness, which means that that might be his undoing. But then again, mm-hmm. Gurm always does what we least expect. So so he'll probably end up killing Sansa in the end. <laughs> there you That's go. That's what'll actually happen. That's an accurate prediction. Littlefinger's going to kill Sansa. Ah, uh, Grace. Mm. <coughs> uh, You're not I wrong. I don't, have a, I don't really have a, a great response to that question. I could be. I feel like, I feel like, Peter's still totally in control and manipulating this the way he wants. He has shared information with Sansa. Um, it's not like she's the only one that knows that information if she decided to betray him. But he, he he's also kind of her only shot, right? So I don't know I don't know that she's got a whole lot of ability to to move in that direction. Hmm. Well, on that note of Sansa, Jamie says that Sansa's his last chance for honor. Do you think that'll come into it at all? Well, I think he's just saying that as a function of of Brienne finding her. Right. Um, But I I think, first of all, that's a bullshit statement. You can have honor in every action you take in any given day. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think he's wrong. Uh, But uh, I think I think I think Brienne will will find Sansa at some point. Yeah. I don't know if that's what yeah, you're I'm dying to find out when she ends up like uh, riding to him. Yeah. Like, what happens after that? Yeah. Yeah, that's where we leave off, right? Because yeah, that could be his undoing. We don't know yet. Right. Yeah. That'll be really cool. Winds of winter. All right. Tell us. Winds of winter. Tell us what's gonna happen. Yeah, now, three years from now, maybe four, we'll know everything. We'll know it all. <laughs> well, up till a dream of spring. Yeah. Which we'll get when we're grandparents. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'll be long dead. Long dead. <laughs> I mean, we'll be at least, I'll I'll be at least like 41 or something. You'll be in your, you guys will be in your 40s. Yeah. 
All right, take it easy. Yeah, but I'll be nipping at your heels, though. <laughs> be far behind. <sighs> I'll be starting to think about college for my kids and stuff. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I feel like I, we haven't been able to mine too much out of this in a Davos After Dark sense. Maybe it's just the, the nature of these chapters, but is there anything else that you guys you found interesting, wanted to bring up? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. It's finger of film. Yeah. It's finger sign offs and then finger of film. Yeah. Let's do a sign off. So Brooke, why don't you, you start us out? Yes. Uh thanks everybody for joining us tonight. This is Brooke signing off saying um actually I don't have anything clever to say. I'm still kind of like in shock and awe of the way that Oberyn Martell died. Here's a moment of silence for the Red Viper of Dorne. Long okay, enough? go ahead. Good moment. Yes, it's long enough. <laughs> uh, this is Matt signing off, reminding you that they can't hurt you unless you let them. And this is Scat signing off with a quote from Tyrion in what is, I think, a, a good, uh, would be a great movie moment. That is where you err, my lord. I have been on trial for being a dwarf my entire life. Thanks, everybody. That's it. Great. Hang tight for films oh. get fingered if you want. That's right. Films get fingered coming That's at right. you right now. But get excited. We actually recorded it last night, so we're actually stopping now. Yeah, my but voice will sound much better not really. in about two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good night, guys. Films get, films get, films get, films get fingered. All right, now it's time to jump into our special segment of Films Get Fingered. The fingers have uh, gone to and experienced Ghostbusters uh, sometime in the last couple weeks, and uh, we're going to finger the hell out of it right now. (laughs) Which is not meant to be some sort of misogynistic comment because it's a movie full of women. Tread carefully on this one. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> All right, what you guys are talking about. So, uh, if you're, if you're, you're, you don't see gender. <laughs> I don't see gender. <laughs> or Man, color. it's really hard not to see gender with Chris Hemsworth on the screen. Woo, that guy is smoking. Oh yeah. But let's okay. let's not jump let's not jump into that yet. Okay, so Lordy. if this is your first time, yeah, to we'll have a special fingered. segment devoted solely to Chris Hemsworth. I mean, the whole review might be devoted to Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay so if, if this is your first time with Films Get Fingered, uh, basically, though A Song of Ice and Fire is our jam, uh, we like movies too, so again, we like talking to each other as friends, so occasionally we just go see movies and uh, talk about them, and we figured we'd record them and let you guys listen in if, if it uh, interests you at all. So we have our own uh, Davos Fingers rating system for films. Three Fingers is loved it. Two Fingers is liked it. Three fingers is meh. Uh, the middle finger is hated it. And the shocker is I want to physically harm this film. <laughs> so middle finger is fuck this movie. Saving that one. Shocker is, yeah, you got to save that one for something really bad. <laughs> I actually want to physically inflict harm on this film. That's what the shocker is. So uh, we usually start out these reviews with just giving our rating. So uh, I don't know, Matt, you want to go first? You bet I do. I didn't just like this movie. I loved this movie. Oh. Three fingers? I love this movie. So three fingers? 
Wow. I was, yeah, what I was I was like, well, I should do two and a half just to not like give it perfect. But screw this half stuff. Three fingers. <laughs> I'm not even sure you gave three fingers three to fingers. Star Wars. I think you did. Uh, if I didn't, I'm changing my rating. I think you did. <laughs> All right, three I fingers for Matt. Kevin. Three fingers for Matt. I'm gonna give it one and a half fingers. It's like a meh plus. Whoa, whoa! Didn't see that coming. All right, sorry, Brooke. Yeah, go I for it. See. I went into this movie like I wanted to just support it. It's not really my jam, but uh, I ended up really liking it. It was a solid comedy, and I give it two fingers. Two fingers. Nice. Cross the board from us. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That... <laughs> no shockers, ladies. No, You're welcome. No, yeah. We spared mm-hmm. you, Kristen Wiig. <laughs> I have a feeling Kate agents. McKinnon's disappointed. <laughs> Kate, Kate McKinnon may have been like, come on, come on, shocker. At least from Brooke. <laughs> uh, for anyone listening who wasn't aware, Kate McKinnon is openly gay. Sorry, was that not? So I... she might enjoy that. That's the joke. Yeah, sorry if that wasn't clear. Well, I wasn't trying. She to... was great. And apparently, Paul Figg says that her character, Jillian Holtzman, in the film, though there was no romances, she is gay in the film too, which is great. So diverse. There was, you know, there was nothing overt, but I did cool. get that sense. Mm-hmm. So my my first note here is McKinnon is awesome. Uh, that's the oh, first note I. So mm-hmm. funny. It's the first note note I took, and uh, I will just, I guess, attribute the fact that I picked that up. I had not heard that from Paul, uh, the director, but uh, I will attribute the fact that I got that little mm-hmm. subtext from just how awesome McKinnon did in general. Because I thought mm. she did. I thought she was fantastic. She was, yeah, a great, like, little, like, comic relief throughout all their conversations. Yeah. So nerdy. Yeah, it's... Well, it felt like everyone, you know, they, they played really specific characters, and I thought they played their characters really well. Uh, but it feels like a lot, they, it was in a very relaxed way. We'll probably, when, when we get to our Hemsworth segment, we'll talk about it, too. Like, there's a certain amount of themselves in, in each of their characters, which I think led to the really solid performances. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, they weren't playing someone completely opposite their actual personalities. Yeah. You know, I don't know much about them as, as people in general, and so it's hard for me to, to agree or disagree with that. But they, I agree that they did feel, they felt, they did feel very natural. And I guess I would add to that mm-hmm. wig specifically. She she kind of felt this. Uh, this is maybe a, a downside. She kind of felt similar to other characters she's played to me. Like it wasn't a whole lot different. It might just be kind of her delivery style and mannerisms are pretty mm. consistent across the board. But right. I could very easily see this being her character from Bridesmaids, kind of just sliding in with yeah. some extra science or from knowledge. Like... Like Paul or from Wonderland or whatever that movie was, oh. the guy from Social Network. Anyways, yeah, she always kind of plays like this timid sort of yeah, ugh. a little bit dry. Yeah, dry. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, always under the breath, sarcastic muttering. It's, it's great. You, I'm so glad you said that because I have a note here that says Wig is the greatest muttering actor of our time. <laughs> It's true. She's She's just like just like the slightly off timing awkwardness under your breath kind of thing that's just gold. Mm -hmm. And I I wonder how much of those she ad libs. They seem too good to to have been written almost. Like it's hard it's hard to write that kind of thing. Yeah, I I feel sometimes like they let Melissa McCarthy off the leash too much. Like I love the movie Spy. 
but sometimes it was like okay just cut this scene like it's enough it's not funny anymore like go to the next really funny dialogue but uh in in this movie she was strong she was solid like like she wasn't all over the map she was she her own character like she, like yeah, yeah like you said Matt like she was she that's cuz that's what i was expecting i was like ah oh, they're going to give her free reign again uh you know it'll be like um in that uh, movie uh, who's the boss no oh she was just in it the one the one where she steals oh, the identity the boss or something oh the boss yeah i know which one you're talking about yeah which was a it was a it didn't get very good reviews but i thought it was a it was a good movie it was cute um but yeah they just kind of <laughs> just let her run with it which can be funny but really like loosens up the movie right and uh Mm -hmm. i thought ghostbusters was tighter because they kept her yeah she was just a a smart funny scientist yeah they let her go a little bit it's almost like she and wig kind of took turns being the uh being the regulator right being the the buffer of you know like and i like that yeah. i like that you could pick out like a certain leader or something that there was always a slight bit of tension between the two of them in that regard yeah they even make the joke in there right when they both kind of say let's go right. at the same time <laughs> let's go yeah. Yeah. oh you wanted to i'll do okay, and that, you'll do it there's that slight amount of tension in during the whole movie it's really slight and it doesn't bother you in any way but you can kind of feel it's there do you know what i mean yeah but each of them kind of wants to be the leader yeah and that's okay yeah their relationships like across the board like between all of the girls and even Hemsworth and the villain like it was it was really good it was very gray but good gray like realistic gray um it was very and yeah yeah, I, I mean realistic to the point where you know they're jumping from scene to scene really fast trying to get this story told but uh that I think they did well for the time that they had and and I really loved to go back to your earlier comment, Matt, that the three sci- there are three scientist women in this film, right? But they didn't all embody the same woman scientist stereotype um, yes. that you see on a lot of TV shows. You know, the strong, capable woman. Like I'm thinking, like characters in like, um, like Bones or Anderson. CSI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or in, uh, NCIS. So, like those. Yeah, like if if basically writers or, or show producers saying, listen, if these women have to be extra smart problem solvers, then that's their They're going to be straight-laced, work. serious. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> everything uh, else. Brunettes, pantsuits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, hair always in place. But, but um, you know, these, these women are, have their own distinct personalities. They're needy, they're crazy, they're weird, they're... Um, well developed considering again that all of the jumping they had to do from scene to scene to keep this a, a an action movie i and, and you know this is just it's a personal thing i think I, I i don't i don't love a ton of action and this movie it straddled the line pretty well but i found there, there's a scene in there in the middle when uh she's actually describing how they became friends um it's a, a scene with all of them they're sitting around eating some papa john's pizza product placement and uh there was a lot of that yeah there was there was some and uh and sh- she's telling the story about how they met and how they became friends and i just and, and, and at the end uh she's she's told how she used to get visited by a ghost uh every night for about mm-hmm. a year and kate mckinnon says i have some questions and i was like awesome great i want to hear the questions more character development more stuff and then they just cut away and I was depressed. I wanted I wanted more character development. I want to hear more. Mm-hmm. I want to hear, you know, McKinnon's character is, uh, was fantastic. And she did such a good job sticking with it and make that per- making that person quirky, but not, I don't think, making the character about the quirk. 
but at the same mm-hmm. time, yeah. it's hard to know what's that. like driving her. You know, like what's what's her human element? It was hard. It was hard to pin that down. And I would love to just learn more about her, and maybe they'll do that in a sequel yeah. or something. Or... Yeah, ahead. her speech at the end gave us a glimpse yeah. at what you're what you're yeah. craving, yeah. and I agree. I want more of that too because she is a fascinating character. But I thought that was a really cute speech. Yeah, I really loved it. And I uh, loved it too. And to Scott's point, the the I, if they if they do this right, you'd think that they would dive more into the characters in in subsequent films if if it goes that way. If they, if there are if there is a sequel or two, yeah. right? Because if you look at the first Ghostbusters, and Scad, you said you watched it. My my three year old is obsessed with Ghostbusters uh-huh. right now. It is all he does. So I've watched the first Ghostbusters at least thirty times in the last month. I bet. Um, <laughs> wow. Well, parts of it. He just he just skips to the ghost parts, so we we miss a lot of the in between. So and there's only like the four. Part go- where, like, the ghost jerks off Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. <laughs> I was, maybe I was maybe going to bring that, that up. Part, actually. <laughs> he just doesn't know what, what's he happening. Do and yet. The perfect him. age where he has no questions. <laughs> it's almost like they put that bit he in just, there just so Dan Aykroyd could do his eye-crossing bit. It's his just, eye thing. It's really a weird, <laughs> unnecessary part but, of the film. When I watched it, I was just like, what is that? It doesn't fit at all. There's some problems with the first. There's there's some problems with the first Ghostbusters that we yeah. might get into, but uh, it, in that first Ghostbusters, you also don't learn a lot about the characters. There's not a ton of character development for Egon and and Venkman and Ray. Yeah, Venkman more than anyone else. I mean, it's it's Bill Murray's movie. Uh, definitely not Winston. He's as two D a character as you can possibly get in any film. Yeah, um, I was just gonna make that point. But. Too. Uh, and that's where Ghostbusters 2 really failed is they could have dug so far into those characters then because that's what the original Ghostbusters was about was about the characters I didn't understand when I was a kid watching Ghostbusters anything about this Zool and the Keymaster and Gozer and all that. I didn't even get what was going on in the story but I loved it because of the characters and uh, you know I, Egon is still my favorite character to this day for sure uh, and that's where Ghostbusters 2 failed is they made it about the ghosts, they made that, and they didn't dig into the characters at all. Uh, and so hopefully that if they do that again with this Ghostbusters, if it gets to a sequel, they'll rectify that and uh, dig into these guys a little more because it's super fascinating. And they give you, like you said, Scott, just a little bit yeah. to wet your tongue and get you excited. Well, prop, props to them for, for getting a little bit, at least, for all the characters, um, like you said about Winston. And mm-hmm. I don't want this to turn into a comparison review. Um, you know, it's not what it's about. This film stands on its own. We don't have to compare it to the other film all the time. But Winston is, like you said, he, it's a mockery of a character. He shows up halfway through. He doesn't really do anything. I mean, when when did when did the term token black guy show up? Because I feel like it was invented in Ghostbusters, the original film, because he doesn't do <laughs> really anything. He's got a little religious bit where he talks about how he believes in God and maybe this is God's punishment. But there's very little there for him to do. But uh, and then he's got the the legendary line. That's a hell of a Twinkie. Yeah, right. that's one big Twinkie. Yeah. He's got a few good lines, but there's nothing character-wise there, right? And and with Patty, they gave her the, this whole historical New Yorker thing, which I thought was awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would have liked to see even more of that, actually. Yeah, like Agreed. I feel like like she was just kind of like progressing the plot with her little like nuggets of historical information oh, i happen to know about that yeah, yeah it yeah. would have been nice if the other characters had really relied on her for that stuff but it was just sort of like 
<laughs> fun fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on this side of the yeah. bus, we have this villain. <laughs> but I did appreciate that that they did add that wrinkle to her character. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. One thing. Um, oh, one thing tragic just about Ernie Hudson uh, with Winston. I was reading an interview with him where he said that. Uh, when he originally read the script, Winston had a whole backstory and everything. Oh. He was like a former Air Force guy who was an engineer, and so he had all this knowledge and stuff. Oh. And then, and then when he got the the final version of the script shortly before they started shooting, they'd cut all that out. Isn't that tragic? Yeah, yeah, it is. That would have. Mm, mm, he said uh... he was pretty disappointed. <laughs> I hope that his cameo in this version really made up for it because it was excellent. <laughs> I uh, loved all the cameos. Yeah, they were great, right? Yeah, the whole movie was a great compliment to the original, and I'm really it glad was. they didn't take the route of like a second generation of Ghostbusters, you know, like trained up by Bill Murray or anything crappy yeah. like that. It was uh, it was it was great that they brought the old characters in, but with new roles. I, uh-huh. I didn't love no, it. No, you didn't like it. Well, I no? at first I liked it. At first I liked it, but it see they were so dedicated to these callbacks. <laughs> I, I was certain that I was actually going to see the real ghost of Harold Ramis show up. They were so dedicated <laughs> to this bit. They did have a bust of him. Did you notice that? Oh, I didn't there see was it. A, a bust. Uh, it's towards the beginning Gosh. of the film. Yeah. Did, was it in the house in the? Uh... In the what was it no. Allridge House? Oh gosh, where it is now? Oh, that's okay. Um, I just it it just felt it just felt too much. Star Wars got some some of these complaints too, right? Where people were just like, oh, the references to the other film, but they were they were <laughs> mostly layered references, right? Um, or or plot similarities, which a lot of people hammered them on. But in this, it was just like, okay, another one. Oh, it's been five minutes. Let's get another one. The the Stay Puft Parade Balloon. I don't know. It just it, in places it felt forced. It's one of the reasons I lowered my review. I liked them, but it was no, just too much. I thought it was whimsical. Yeah. I liked it. I thought they had yeah. just the right. It wasn't too heavy-handed, but I uh, I can see if you if you start looking for it, if you if you become like distracted by them, then it would it would feel um, yeah too much. But I I think the best cameo of all was the firehouse. It was so great. Just when the get, firehouse when the, when the realtor shows it to them, and they're, like, dancing around, and you're like, yeah, the boys are oh. back in town. And, and she's like, it'll be 21,000. Yeah. Burn in What did she say? Burn she's like, hell. you go to hell. Burn in hell. It was so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh... Okay, so, so I feel like this is a good segue into some complaints. <laughs> maybe why you're giving this a finger and a knuckle well so this movie had me like the first half hour i was all in the writing was good the lines were good i didn't feel like anything was like a bit or like a some sort of physical comedy that was just shoved in there there was nothing kind of i didn't feel like anything was forced it felt like it was flowing very much like the original film ghostbusters again i don't really mean to compare i know i'm doing it but um just, oh, we have to. It'll happen. That's fine. Just the, it, the, the all the lines and the characters and the relationships, the the dialogue felt very natural to me. And I was rolling. I was alone in the theater by myself and laughing out loud probably a dozen times in the first 30 minutes. <laughs> and that's huge, right? I, I loved it. But as soon as they started getting into the ghost stuff, 
specifically specifically the uh the theater with the with the metal concert or that whole metal thing just it felt like such a bit to me like oh you gotta drag it and they're all gonna believe it and it's a funny joke and the physical comedy of the crowd surfing is just too much and then the this big horrifying ghost thing just happens and all the people just want to go back to a rock show and they just pick up where they left off in the song it just, it just at it, four o'clock in the afternoon. It, it yeah, that's <laughs> the biggest one in the middle of the day. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> unlikely. Got me at that whole scene. True. Yeah, unless it were like some sort of battle of the bands or something. But Ozzy was there, so I don't think that's what was going on. Yeah, I just, I just did. Is this a Saturday? I didn't love that scene, and it just it, it's kind of it was kind of a precursor to all of the, the 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 testing out the devices in the alley. You know, it's like wrestling a gate. Like it's just a very much a bit. It's like something I would have seen in. Identity or whatever that movie was called, where she steals the uh, the identity of Jason Bateman, or very very bit related stuff. And I don't, mm-hmm. I didn't want that in this movie. I didn't want it. I, the the characters and the dialogue was great. It was funny. And the, when they started getting into the ghosts and the weapons and stuff, the, it lost me. If this was a standalone movie without the original Ghostbusters, those scenes would make very little sense and be like right. a total disconnect from the rest of the movie. They're really relying on the audience having seen or at least knowing about, like it's pretty hard to avoid the cultural phenomenon that is the original Ghostbusters, right? So they're just getting lazy, honestly. And it's you're right, it wasn't funny. And it was like, oh my God, just catch this ghost and go. Yeah. Huh. I didn't mind it. <laughs> Where you you're know, like, yeah, crowd end... surfing. I feel like I'm right back in 1996. This is great, guys. <laughs> 1996. Matt did crowd did surfing crowd yesterday. Surf I was 13. <laughs> it was a Dave Matthews band concert, so everyone was too high to catch Sorry. him. But everyone's like, no, dude, just come down, hang yeah. out, like, yeah, just chill, just chill out. Man, it's too much it's effort to lift sat. people. <laughs> My first mosh pit was in 1996, so I'm going to stick with that reference. That a girl. Yeah. I Mother Earth and Moist. Oh, so good. Mm. So, uh, But I think the, the reason that stuff didn't bother me uh, is I, maybe just the way I set my expectations. The original Ghostbusters is a comedy. And I think people don't like maybe i'm getting into too big of a topic here for this so maybe i'll hold off a little bit but to me the original ghostbusters is a comedy it's a cultural phenomenon like brooke said it's legendary if i had to pick a top 10 films and i was able to combine like the star wars saga into (laughs) one film and lord of the rings like into one film then Mm. then ghostbusters make my top 10 uh but it's a comedy and and so this one was still a comedy to me and those bits yet yeah, the concert scene in particular i'm glad you brought that up scott because i think it went about three or four minutes too long uh but it was fun it was funny and in the end it felt like a ghostbusters movie to me and that's why i liked it i think that's the same thing i said about force awakens is it felt like a star wars movie to mm-hmm. me this one felt like a ghostbusters movie to me yeah i, I get i i agree that it, it felt like ghostbusters there were just a few moments in there where they relied on physical humor gags that I just, it didn't fit to me. It didn't fit the overall. Leslie Jones theme jumping the... out and falling flat on her face. You saw that coming five miles away, right? <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. And, um, 
you know that wasn't the only one but um yeah i, I just it it just kind of took me out the you know the, the i also thought the the weapons were a little weird the, like like those so the, the the proton packs are usually about you know harnessing them and, and trapping them right but then they're being used to like destroy the ghosts like rip through them but sometimes they could, and sometimes they could only lasso and throw them. I realize I'm getting the really shredder. the shredder. I realize I'm getting like really technical yeah. for what is essentially a movie about ghosts, and people might hate that. But like, I'm I'm always big on this. I will suspend my disbelief for whatever you want me to do. But you have to be consistent with your rules within your own world. And when they're like mm. doing different things with those guns, I was put off by it. I got the impression that the original proton packs were like the lasso things that they were throwing them around with. And it's when they started whipping out the specialized weapons that they had different functions. Yeah, but I, I and maybe saw... I'd need to watch that fight scene again. Well, maybe I need to again, too. I feel like sometimes those things ripped through, uh, you know, like they ripped through the parade balloons, the, the original ones. Um, but they... Maybe that's because they were balloons, ghostified balloons, rather than well, pure ghosts. Maybe there's maybe. different, like consistently levels in the in the ecto uh, whatever levels of of the ghosts, and that depends on how the <laughs> could the proton packs. Maybe I just need to maybe I just need to relax levels. on the physics rules or something. I don't know. Maybe I just need to relax. I did like that they didn't shy away from the dangers. <laughs> like, mm, that's essentially a nuclear bomb on top of our <laughs> yeah. car. Um, yeah. Don't right. put your face so close to that. Please stop kissing the <laughs> confinement units. Or it's like in the first one when Egon <laughs> flips on uh, whoever uh, Venkman's proton pack and then he backs into the corner of the elevator <laughs> with that look yeah. on his face. Like, yeah. <laughs> the, the best one of that with the dangerous weapons was in the subway when she hands her this thing that she wasn't expecting to receive at all uh, McKinnon hands it to uh, to Wig and she says why why am I holding this and she says you have the longest arms okay the longest <laughs> arms. and then she puts that collar around her yeah, <laughs> yeah. What's, what's the iron level in your blood oh I'm sure it's fine oh, that I'm sure it's fine My favorite McKinnon line is when they're listening to the the tape recording. And what does McKinnon say about when they hear the fart sound? And she's oh. like, yeah, what you yeah. don't know is that was actually from the front. Does it make it better or worse if it's if I told you it's from the front? Yeah. You know, like 10 minutes into the movie and there's a quiff joke. Yes. There was a 10-year-old girl sitting in front of me uh, the second time I saw this uh, when that joke was made. And I laughed really hard. <laughs> uh, did you lean up and whisper what it meant no Matt the kid, get that. he's not in jail so I'm, I'm not that. Peter Baelish <laughs> yeah. uh, so there were I don't know if you noticed uh, Matt but you and I have talked about uh, Milena Vaintrub before and actually Brooke I think I sent you her, uh, her web series uh, let's talk about something more interesting which was a, this would have been a mm. while ago but uh, she's she's yeah, now the girl on the, the uh, AT and T commercials. She was yeah. in there. She got mauled mm-hmm. by some rat ghosts. Also, the villain guy, uh, and also the delivery food guy, were all part of uh, Paul Feig's uh, series uh, Other Space, which was on Yahoo mm. Screen, which I watched and enjoyed, but it didn't get renewed unfortunately. So he was uh, showing some loyalty there, bringing them in pretty cool mm, nice i i wish i knew more about fig 
the thing I'm most familiar familiar with with him is Heavyweights, which he acts in. It's beautiful. It's a pivotal role. A pivotal oh, that role. one. It's That's an old just... Disney '90s movie about kids that go to fat camp. Kids that go to fat camp, yeah. and he's a counselor at the camp. I want to hit home for me. I gotta. It's gotta a just look this one movie. up. You're gonna have to watch that one. It's got like the whole cast of the Mighty Ducks on it. Um... <laughs> after they quit skating, <laughs> after they put the skates down, they all have to go to fat camp. I would be YouTubing this right now if it was wouldn't affect our signal. But I'll just, <laughs> just tuck that one away for later. Go, go um... watch it. It's pretty remarkable. He he won my loyalty with Spy. I thought that was just a fantastic movie. <laughs> he did so he did funny. He did Bridesmaids and he did Spy and he did. Mm-hmm. He, he's basically been relying or uh, in bed with Melissa, not literally uh, in bed with Melissa McCarthy over the last several years. That's what he's mostly been doing. It seems to me, but smart. Yeah, not and a bad, not a bad choice. Wig, arguably. Yeah. Um. Well. He did let me down in this movie, and why it lost one finger is um, the CGI was terrible. It oh. was so bad, so campy. It was like if they made that live-action Scooby-Doo film in 2016. It was just so oh, The ghosts were terrible. And you know but what he I, said? He said what? that was purposeful. Believe why? it or not. Why? Why did they do that? Oh, Partly as a callback to the old worlds? Ghostbusters. Well, here's and... the thing. What I like about the original Ghostbusters is that a lot of the ghosts were legitimately, like, scary. They were horror. Like, the ghost in the library? So scary. When they <laughs> they let loose the, uh, the portal or whatever, there were some really scary ghosts in there. Like, Goonie shit. I think that if they had taken that tone... Oh, ghosts and Goonies? you're right there isn't i'm thinking just like 80s in general but like you know where they they do like the lights in the mirror and that's how they make the ghosts it's kind of what it looks like anyways um but if they had taken that same i guess slimer is the exception in the first film but even he was even kind of scary that first hotel scene when they're coming up like behind him there was some serious suspense in in that ghost scene right um but I, I feel like if they'd taken that tone with the special effects in this Ghostbusters, like genuinely horror, scary ghosts, then the excellent dialogue and the gags, like Chris Hemsworth's dumb blonde and, and the, the Chinese food thing and um, the slime, it, it would have shone even brighter. It, it would have made it that much more funnier if, on the other hand, you're jumping in your seat, right? But I could be wrong. Like, I'm not movie director so i'm just a relentlessly judgmental consumer of movies which... <laughs> i didn't, yes, I didn't you are. Give you a lot of credibility <laughs> i don't remember having a huge problem with the ghosts uh, oh, i noticed them that they didn't look great but... well I, I hated the i hated the last guy the last ghost the the, the main guy that turned into the, like the supposedly the friendly looking ghostbuster ghost. yeah that that guy kind of bothered me. He he just looked like a he looked he looked like. Did you guys ever see the movie Nine about the little characters that are made of like uh, little sock puppet kind of things? No, but I've always wanted to see it. Pretty good. I I enjoyed it, but uh, he kind of just looked like one of those. It was I, I mean I didn't I know the joke I guess is that he was trying to be not intimidating because that was the request, but it also seemed like he was really easy to defeat. They set the building on fire and it like charred the shit out of him like. 
I don't think you need to reverse the polarity of anything. Just keep firing your things at them and you'll be fine. Um, I don't there's know. that inconsistency within the universe for you. Yeah. Like, I did like how we burst out of that building, though. That was pretty clever. That was cool. That was cool. I just yeah. didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really love that. I mean, he didn't really, he didn't really do a whole lot. He kind of like walked past them. They like hit a few buildings and like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Just, it, it seemed lame. Yeah, it was a lot of work with the ley lines and setting up yeah. everything and <laughs> filling yeah. himself yeah. just to be like a mindless walking. Just to be that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Poor Richard. Let's say this about that, that, Go ahead. that final fight scene with all the ghosts. I heard some people complaining about that. Um, they thought it was too long or too cheesy or whatever. But just from the perspective of a kid who spent a lot of time with his friends in the cul-de-sac pretending like we were Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. like that was the Ghostbusters that we always played at when we were kids. Yeah, like fighting just like dozens of ghosts coming at you from every angle and you're like, Turner, you've got two guns and you're like blasting them from every side and stuff. <laughs> so from a kid's, per- from a, like a nostalgia factor, that that final battle scene really worked for me. I liked it. It, it was cool. Back. I don't Even know, though I don't... there were women playing it. That's I don't... what was so cool about it. I don't know why he bothered. He could have just frozen them in place like he froze everyone else in place. But, uh, yeah, it was a cool scene. I agree. Yeah. I did like the slow-mo Holtzman, Kate McKinnon's character yeah. going through Looking just like two-handed yeah. blasting ghosts. Yeah. That did it for me. I really enjoyed that scene. <laughs> oh. That was great. Awesome. That worked for everyone. It was fun. It was fun. Like, um, in the yeah, end, was... the movie was fun. Were you ever into the animated series? <laughs> mm. No? Reasonably. The, the, they had the seasons on. They brought them back to Target. All the seasons of the real Ghostbusters. And so we bought the first four seasons and have them tucked away to give to Hiram for Christmas. But, nice. Ooh. Nice. Oh, so I was just going to say, your kid would like that a lot less like <laughs> sexual ghost stuff. <laughs> I mean, there's still some, but... <laughs> The term slimed you just got a whole different well, meaning. You can have to watch this. On that, okay. Hiram comes into the room the other day, and he's always just quoting Ghostbusters. And he's like, we came, we saw, we kicked his ass. This three-year-old kid. That's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. That's excellent. That's awesome. Anyways, what were you going to say? You asked if we liked the animated series. Yeah, no, I just want to recommend it to you because oh. uh, that was like, like we liked the movie growing up. Like it came out just at the right time when I was a kid. But uh, mm. it was the animated series that we had all the toys for that we, mm. you know, yeah. recreated in the cult stack. Same deal. Like, oh, they... I loved the animated series Egon. They actually did flesh out the characters a little more. I don't think I could tell you um, what's his nuts backstory, but <laughs> uh, they they did have. A little more individualism. Yeah. Huh. I never watched it. You, you, you begging your mom to buy you the Ecto Cooler high seas? Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, yeah, I will say this about the, boxes. the, the toys the they had. We didn't have anything good in Canada. <laughs> the toys they had were fantastic. Uh, I don't know about the Ecto Cooler. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was good. But the toys they had, they were definitely fantastic. 
I the toys. Yeah, they had the the full scale um, the thing that collects the ghosts, uh-huh. where you stomp on yeah, it with your the foot trap. and the, the little traps open. Yeah, oh, that. that was good times. Yeah. You remember yeah. the proton packs? They were like plastic backpacks, and then they had the gun, and then to to simulate the ray coming out of it, it was just like a pool noodle. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it was like five feet long. Uh-huh. Do you remember that? Yep. And you just like stuck it into the pro into the end of the gun. <laughs> you like <laughs> wobbled it around. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty great. Do we uh, do we have a little bit of time for some Hemsworth appreciation? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> that was so. I'm being fairly talk. serious here. <laughs> Hemsworth was fantastic, you guys. Yeah. Uh, my only complaint is that he kept his accent even when he was being possessed. That really like distracted me. But otherwise, that oh, whole like you dance to get like was... deep voiced and like. Well, he was being possessed by the villain Rowan, right? Yeah, he so should have uh-huh. had an American accent, or at least that creepy, you know, yeah. his creepy like little um, yeah. self-sacrificing man accent. Well, I, I don't know how the possession in their world works. Uh, it's like when he yeah. when he possessed him, he's like, I hope this guy knows how to ride a motorcycle. Like it seems like they still keep all of their attributes. They're just not in control mm-hmm. of of uh, of their faculties. It's a little weird. And when they, you know, when when uh, when Abby got possessed as well, seems like her her voice was still the same. And I don't know. Oh yeah, maybe one. And I know we're I'm comparing the first Ghostbusters, but one problem I have with the first Ghostbusters is that I think Annie Potts is criminally underutilized yeah. in that mm-hmm. film. Her little she like so great. She's and the little, on Egon though, it's gold. It, it is great. And the little argument she has with Venkman about hiring more help yeah. and stuff like that is so <laughs> wonderful. And I would have loved to see more because she had such these little tiny nuggets of great moments with the Ghostbusters. And, ah, oh, she's so wonderful. And then Ghostbusters 2 just wrecked it all and made her into a bit part with with uh, Rick, Rick Moranis. Cool. And they just destroyed those two characters in Ghostbusters 2. But, and so I loved... I loved seeing them just let Hemsworth go. And I loved not only what he did, but the way the Ghostbusters started to kind of treat him towards the end as kind of like the little brother. Oh, a lost puppy that has to be taken care of. (laughs) Right. He's almost mastered the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Could you answer the phone? Can't. It's in the fish tank. So wonderful. Do you know that a fish tank is like a submarine (laughs) for fish? (laughs) Uh, It was really good. Yeah, he was he was fantastic. I was gonna say I like that they let him just kind of. He didn't have, you know, these Thor hair prosthetics, and it was it just seemed like it was Chris Hemsworth getting to be Chris Hemsworth. Normal hair, normal clothes, normal accent, and I wonder if he benefited if. His performance benefited from him just being able to like relax and and not have to worry about all this other stuff. I he was, anyways, he was good in uh, a cabin in the woods too, where he wasn't a superhero. I thought he was excellent in that. And he was kind of like a but, jock, uh, which maybe is yeah, even more what he's really like. I don't know. I have no idea actually what he's well, like. But he was. But he started out as like an intellectual university student, and yes. then he kind of morphed into a jock as they manipulated the kids. But correct. Yeah. I, I love that movie. By yeah, the way, me so too. Good. Good one. 
Excellent. Yeah. Um, That's Whedon, but, uh, though. You better be careful. Uh, he's not all bad. <laughs> just mostly bad. Um, but... Um, I, I will say? hurt you. Oh, yeah. I really like how um, there was... There's no, like, romantic subplots in this movie. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for not wasting Great. our time. Yeah. But I did like how Kristen Wiig became, like, a stuttering <laughs> mess around his yes. worth. And then Melissa McCarthy was like, oh, hey, this is our new hire. <laughs> You're here for the interview. Great. And she like... literally calls him unattractive. Like, what? Yes! <laughs> it was <laughs> when when uh, Melissa McCarthy, when they're talking about Hemsworth showing them the mock-ups that he came up with for their logo, and <laughs> Melissa McCarthy's like, whip it out. And Kristen Wiig's like, oh. oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> she looks at her like, you are a you lawsuit, are a lawsuit waiting, waiting to happen. Yeah. I've said this. You guys, like, I just watch interviews. Like, I've said that like four times a night. I was watching this interview, but I watched another one. And it was with all the Ghostbuster girls. It was, uh, what's that British, talk, uh, Graham Norton show? Mm. I don't know okay. if you guys are familiar with it. But they were talking to them about Hemsworth. And Melissa McCarthy was talking about how she just wanted to find something to hate about Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> and she said the fact that he was funny was infuriating to her. because he's <laughs> That's my jam! You can't be funny, too! <laughs> yeah. They said he was... He, all of them just raved about how actually funny he was. Like, he was just hilarious. And he, he said there was one part where he started, they were talking about music or something, and Chris Hemsworth started singing. And she and Melissa McCarthy said she said to him, you shut up right now. <laughs> she couldn't take the thought of him actually being a good singer, too, in addition to everything else that he's apparently perfect at. And she said, Jake, she said, to him, you shut up right now. I just have to live in a world where I believe that you're at least terrible at something and I want it to be singing. But they said he was legitimately hilarious. But, yeah. but here's the thing. We could all be under his spell, too. Everybody thinks he's just so great because he's so good looking, and we wouldn't know the difference. We wouldn't know. <laughs> you know oh, Chris what? I don't, he's so funny. I don't want to know the difference. I don't want to. Know I'm so happy here in my blissful <laughs> ignorance. <laughs> yeah, you can tell when somebody's got a bad voice, though. Like the funny mm-hmm. thing I buy, you could, they can, de- you can definitely be under somebody's spell, and the attraction can get through that but when somebody starts singing and they're bad they're just bad yeah maybe for those theater folk you thespians the rest of us is not really like a deal breaker no i didn't mean it's a deal breaker i mean you just when you've you got know he's bad. Like that you can sing however you want son yeah <laughs> yeah and that's partially true i assume then your wife's an excellent singer no i i'm not saying it's a deal breaker <gasps> for me what i'm saying is you can't fool someone by being attractive when you start singing. It's clear you're not a good singer. It doesn't mean that it's a deal breaker necessarily. But no, my wife mm-hmm. is an awful singer. As am I. We're both not good. Not great. Whatever. Not 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 good. I'm the best singer in my family. I'll say that. My family fingers. Awful. Fingers on the singing talent. Uh, probably like one for <laughs> one most of... people. Uh, I don't have. Do I have anything else that I want to say? Closing statements. Anything. I, f- I feel bad for giving it one and a half. I just, I, there were enough things. Maybe it's a flaw in our rating system. That's there fine. were just enough things that just pulled it down for me really liking it that I, I couldn't, I couldn't really give mm-hmm. it two in good conscience. 
Okay, well, here's the the real kicker. Did you like it more than you thought you would? I think I liked it about as much as I thought I would. Okay. I don't think they did a good a great job with the previews with with selling the camaraderie that they built with that team of women. Um a lot of people didn't like the trailers. Yeah. Yeah, somebody redid the trailer and was excellent. Yeah. Yeah. But uh probably about as much as I thought I'd like it. What about you, Brooke? More or less than you oh, thought. Oh, way more. Way more than yeah, I was going in kind of like holding my breath, but it was great. Mm-hmm. I really liked Me it. Too. I didn't love it. Yeah, like too. it's not gonna it's not gonna make my top ten, but I, right. I hope it's the start of a solid franchise because they've got a yeah. good foundation going. I think so too. It's a good foundation film. Yeah. Yeah. For a franchise. Yeah. Yeah. It could definitely spawn like an excellent sequel. All right. Yeah. I've, I've got a good way. I got a good way to end it. Okay. Complete the following sentence with a single word. Based on this movie, Bustin makes me feel. <laughs> Brooke? Um, I'm trying not to be dirty. <laughs> um, Bustin makes me feel sleepy. Mm, like you I want you to take a minute to think about it. Since I knew it, I'll, 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 I'll go first since I kind of had a little prep time. Bustin okay. makes me feel meh. <laughs> Based on this film. Said the, old, the only man that's ever said that. Yeah. True. It's never been said before. I feel completely <laughs> original. Uh, Bustin makes me feel pleasantly surprised. Two words, but we'll take it. Yeah. Pleasantly surprised. <laughs> One word. Hyphenated. Yeah. <laughs> Bustin makes me feel, if we're allowed multiple words, because Matt said we were, yeah. that Kate McKinnon is making me question my sexuality. Which is... <laughs> yeah, girl. I don't think that has anyone has escaped that. She was excellent. <laughs> Well, I'm glad yeah. that uh, that this film could could turn you in that direction, Brooke. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, guys. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's one of those movies that if you go in wanting to not like it, there's a decent chance you come out of it not liking it, right? But if you go into it just looking for a fun movie, you liked it, right? It's a good summer movie. Whether it was summer Matt, movie. it was really good. It was a yeah. great summer movie, which is what Ghostbusters was originally. I went back and read some of the original Ghostbusters reviews, and they talked about just how it was a great comedy yeah, and mm-hmm. stuff. That's what they were talking about it back in 1984 whenever it came out. So it was a great comedy. Bill Murray was – they talked about the characters. Bill Murray was great. Dan Aykroyd was great. Harold Ramis was great. And, yeah, that's how, um, what we have to say about this one too is – Great characters, good comedy, good film. Good summary. Okay, thanks everybody. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. Hope you like Films Got Fingered. Let us know if you do or don't, uh, but we'll do it anyway. So, (laughs) Listen, we're going to finger a lot more films. Yeah, we enjoy fingering. We have (laughs) a a lot of potential fingering movies that we could be doing. Mm -hmm. We could have done Suicide Squad. We could have we could have gotten a shocker out of that if we were really going for one. Who knows? Yeah, let's let's uh, let's let's chat. See if we all end up watching it. Yeah. Yep. All right, all right. So uh, thanks for joining us for Films Got Fingered. Yep, and stay pruny, my friends. Welcome everyone to episode two. <laughs>
Sorry. <laughs> what? Did you fall out of your chair? What was that? <laughs> I yeah, totally skipped the name the of the podcast. Scene. I skipped the name of the podcast. I went right into episode 47. Oh, yeah, you can just skip it. They'll know what it is. Yeah. It's fine. They'll figure it out. Here we go the again. The podcast you're about to hear. Okay. I'm more, I'm more worried about my... You do not my... sound good. <laughs> like, <laughs> because I'm submitted to feeling great. It's like, who are you? Okay, let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. You guys, I'm a gamer. This is gonna be. I I do not doubt your enthusiasm. You know who's a gamer is Brooke, who was apparently suffering through the whole last episode and didn't tell us until like five minutes before we were finishing. <laughs> Well, oh, you should see the pile of like carefully constructed pillows behind my back right now. It's incredible. Are you still suffering? I'm, I'm getting much better. Do you oh want to postpone? Yeah. No, I'm good. But I'm not going to have halls clack against my teeth as I talk. Can, so... you hear, can you hear it? Can you hear that happening? A little bit. No, but Matt can. So My keen editing ear. Uh, <laughs> I'm chafing right now. Does that count as an ailment? <laughs> What the fuck, man? Like, deliberately (laughs) chafing? What does that even mean? You're sitting still. (laughs) Oh, I'm chafed. Yeah. All right. uh... So for for the format, there's just one thing I would say. Maybe, Skad, can you explain the rating system before we all give our ratings again? Yeah, do you guys remember what it was? Just a reminder of what that is. Oh, you, to um, them or to you? One finger, two finger, them. three fingers. Uh, what's the middle finger and shocker? Oh. The, the <laughs> only thing I can't remember actually is whether the one finger rating was didn't like it or more like a meh. I think it was a meh. Was it meh? And then it'd be like a meh because three is the best. Yeah, three yeah. is the best. Right. So three is There's loved three it. Best. Two is liked it. One, it was either meh or didn't like it. I can't remember. The middle yeah, finger is fuck this movie, and the shocker is I actually want to physically <laughs> harm this movie. It's, it's so bad. That's the way I describe it. I so, feel like if we fingered Suicide Squad, the shocker might come into it. <laughs> Chewy. Wow. Chewy, we're home. You thought of that? I thought That's of like I it. thought of Cersei Lannister uh, to Jamie. You're home. You're home. You're home. You guys don't recall this? It was like two Thanks episodes. Thanks for making ago. this incestuous right off the bat. Sorry, man. That's... What was that? Like twenty seconds before we got to the incest. Well, I thought, you know what? I don't. I don't like to. I don't like to waste any time. It's just uh, it solid, even for us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it looks like it's just wall-to-wall anger and explosions to me. Which, you know, maybe that's not true. And Margot Robbie. Robbie. And Hot Pants. It's a good stuff. I've heard good things about her, and people were saying surprisingly... Well, some were surprised and some were unsurprised that Will Smith's performance was really strong for his character. I don't know why you'd ever be surprised that Will Smith has a strong performance. He's, he's like, really talented. Uh, just a, he is, yes. but, uh, you know, it's just like, when was the last time Will Smith did a good movie? Oh. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the question. last time he did a good movie, he did an accompanying rap to that movie. It was Wild Wild West. 
I think it was Jersey Girl. <laughs> also, I think his Men last good film was Jersey Girl. Also, Men in Black, Independence um, Day. Did he do a rap to Independence Day? Like, of course he did. He does it that's like in his, his contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's like in his contract. He must be able to do a rap. I was just excited because Will Smith finally gets to maybe get revenge on Ben Affleck for the Jersey Girl comments that he makes. Do mm. they have a do they have a feud? Yeah, I don't know about this. You don't know about this? Nope. The whole, Jersey Girl, the whole the whole premise mm-hmm. of the beginning is he's a He's an ad, he's a spinner, right? He's a he's a promotional guy, right? But he has his kid. He has to take his kid that he just had because the the wife dies, Jennifer Lopez, and so he's got the kid full time. And he takes her to the event where he's trying to do the press event for Will Smith, and the kid's mm-hmm. screaming and it needs a diaper. She needs a diaper change and everything, and uh, <laughs> and he loses it. And completely bombs his client in front of everybody, saying, like, there's no way this Fresh Prince is ever going to become anything, blah, 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 blah. And, like, gets kicked out of the industry for ruining his client in front of this right. big group of people. And so this is Will Smith's chance okay. for revenge. Yeah. No? I thought there was, like, something behind the scenes that happened oh, in no. real life. No, because yeah, this is a real Yeah, I, I remember all that. Yeah, it was a long way to go for that <laughs> joke. It would have been funny if you guys just got it for me. But... You're letting me down, and I feel, like our, down I feel like our kinship is has lessened to a degree. This is, this is not my fault. What? Uh... I'm going to watch Jersey Girl later. All right. <laughs> I watched uh, Mallrats last night. I know. I was kind of jealous. I was watching uh, Star Wars, uh, the uh, Clone Wars series, trying to power through it. Brooke, what were you watching last night? I'm trying to remember, actually. Ghostbusters. The back of your eyelids? Oh, yeah! Ghostbusters! Yeah. <laughs> Legally. <laughs> that good, huh? Uh, I'm excited for your review, Brooke. I'm on pins and needles now. So good you forgot it within a day. <laughs> it should come as no surprise. Yeah. All right, should we, we dive in? To, are we ready to rock? Yeah, yeah, let's rock it, rock it. Okay, uh, I've never done like an intro for just this before. We have music, right? If I remember correctly? Films get, films uh, get, films get, fingered or something, right? Yeah, it's like my go-to melody for everything. <laughs> it's a good go-to. Solid. All right. Oh, gosh. Hey, guys. A lot of good music in this episode, hey? So the first one was called One Hit Wonder. That's by Everclear off their album So Much for the Afterglow. The perfect little finger song. Uh, we also had uh, Ava Adore from the Smashing Pumpkins and their album Adore. Uh, an album that was not liked when it was initially released, but is now being recognized for its merits. Check it out. We also had uh, Hard For Me To Say I'm Sorry by one of the greats, <clears throat> Chicago, off their album 1982. And then finally we did throw in some Wallflowers there, their song Three Ways. And that's from their album, Red Letter Days. Uh, So hope you enjoyed the music, the rest of the episode, and we will catch you next time. Take care, guys.